Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. On death row with no death sentence. For several years now, well over a decade, the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections kept dozens of men on death row even though they didn't have a pending death sentence. These men, held at the state's death rows in Greene County and Greaterford, were people who had their death sentences overturned by a state or federal court and held in solitary confinement for months and years until two men filed suits against this long-standing DOC practice. Craig Williams of Greene and Sean T. Walker of Greaterford filed separate civil actions in federal court challenging this procedure, but both men initially lost. Both men began their actions by filing their suits pro se or without a lawyer, and both filed appeals before the third U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, where both men prevailed. The federal appeals court ruled in a February 9, 2007 opinion that the continued detention of men in solitary confinement who had no pending death sentences was violative of a state-created liberty interest under the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Williams spent six years on death row without a death sentence. Walker spent eight years on death row without a death sentence. In Williams v. Secretary, DOC, the Third Circuit found this confinement unconstitutional, but also granted the DOC the defense that, until now, This right wasn't clearly established. The Williams decision, being the first of its kind, put the DOC on notice that such a practice was now per se unconstitutional and a violation of a prisoner's state-created liberty interest. Williams proved a talented jailhouse lawyer when he was on the row. He's been off death row since 2012, and he's still one hell of a jailhouse lawyer, still making new law. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. 
the President of the United States of America awards the Presidential Medal of Freedom to John Pope Franklin. John Hope Franklin, the son of the South, has always been a moral compass for America, always pointing us in the direction of truth. I look history straight in the eye and call it like it is, John Hope Franklin has said. This has meant telling the untold stories of Northern racism and of slaves successfully striking for better conditions under the sinful confines of slavery. Collectors, fellow historians, and fans packed the Durham, North Carolina, home of the late John Hope Franklin this weekend. Franklin was a world-famous scholar of African-American history who died in 2009. He influenced how the world thinks about slavery. WUNC's Leonita Inge reports people lined up hours early to honor the man and to buy some of his things. You can call it an estate sale or a tax sale. The bottom line is everything had to go. 186. That's a bargain. There was a steady stream of shoppers like Chuck Samuels. Gay Gasper Pleasant and her estate company organized the sale. Any books? Thank you so much. No. No books. <laughs> You're the first one. The first one with no books. Samuels was amazed at what was still inside the Franklin home. He purchased glassware and the piano. Well, you know, some of it, it seems a little bittersweet because there do seem to be some things that I would think should belong in a museum, you know. Pleasant agrees. While prepping for the sale, she discovered several great finds. One of the first books I picked up and pulled out of the shelf, I, I uh, opened and it was, it was signed by the author, uh, Fred Gray, who was the author of Bus Ride to Justice. And I, I said to my son, look, this is Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks' attorney and Martin Luther King's attorney, and he dedicated it to Dr. Franklin. The biggest draw had to be the thousands of books. There were hundreds alone on slavery, the South, the Civil War, and Reconstruction, Franklin's specialty. Many of the people perusing Franklin's shelves were in a daze. Some cried and others sat in chairs reading as if they were in a library. Tina Bryant clutched a framed award presented to Franklin by the American Philosophical Society. Bryant may use it as a history lesson at work or at home for her daughter. Ugly racism still exists, as we all know, but she never saw it in some of its ugliest and rarest forms. So maybe hang it up at home first and, and begin those conversations there with my 12-year-old and then transition it eventually. Courtney Reed Eaton sat outside Franklin's stately 1930s two-story home on a wooden bench, which she purchased along with a briefcase and two of Franklin's many doctoral hoods he wore at graduations. And some of them have, like, labels in them with his name in them, like like when your kid goes to camp and you have your name. And so I'm just like, I'm over the moon. The estate sale planner said it was their favorite one yet because everyone was so happy. Some of the more important things are already at the John Hope Franklin Center at Duke University. For NPR News, I'm Leonita Inge in Durham, North Carolina. Have you forgotten that once we were brought here, we were robbed of our name, robbed of our language. We lost our religion, our culture, our God. And many of us, by the way we act, we even lost our minds. Ten years ago, StoryCorps started building a collection of interviews about African-American life. It's called StoryCorps Griot, and to date, we've recorded nearly 10,000 conversations as part of this project. In this episode, we're sampling some of those interviews from the Griot collection. 
And these are stories that cover everything from family characters. When the Civil War ended, she was 16. And I just did not want to be spending my time with a senile old woman. To what it was like being a black soldier during World War II. She punched the machine. I reached my hand to get the ticket and lay down the money. And she pulled it back. We even have memories of NASCAR's first African-American Hall of Fame driver. You know, it was like Picasso, like a great artist doing his work. He was in that car. He was doing his work. We're celebrating a decade of StoryCorps Griot. I'm Michael Garofalo, and this is the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Stay with us. Hey, listeners, this is Jasmine Belcher-Morris from StoryCorps. So all this month, we're asking you to tell a friend about a podcast they might like. You can tell them on social media, in real life, but no matter how you do it, tell us what you recommended with the hashtag tripod, like try a podcast. Again, that's hashtag tripod. Thanks for spreading the word. Welcome back. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've heard me talk about StoryCorps initiatives. These are large-scale efforts to collect interviews with a specific group of people. We're always paying attention to who's recording StoryCorps interviews so that we can make sure that our archive truly represents the population of the U.S. And through initiatives, people who have often been left out of the story of our country have a chance to be heard. You know what I mean, because on this podcast, we've brought you stories of LGBTQ life from the Out Loud initiative or stories from veterans and their families as part of Military Voices. But the first nationwide, large-scale initiative like this was StoryCorps Griot. It launched 10 years ago with a national recording tour and an archive partnership with the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. That was year one, but Griot still continues to this day, and we're still partnered with the museum. So if you're African American and you record a StoryCorps interview, you'll have the option to share your recording not only with the Library of Congress, but also with the Smithsonian. Now, let's go back to the beginning, February 2007. I'm sitting here with Melvin Reeves, who's the person who designed and launched StoryCorps Griot 10 years ago. Thanks for joining us, Melvin. You're welcome. So can we start with the name, Griot? Can you talk about what that means and why you chose it for this? Sure. A griot in West African culture is the holder of a community's history. And some of them are able to recite the history going way, way back to the present day. So it just seemed sensible to use it as a way to frame what we were trying to achieve. So the Griot Tour had its own mobile recording booth. Yes. And where did you go in that first year? What was the tour? Atlanta, Detroit, Chicago, Newark, Oakland. We went to a total of about 22 places. So, for example, somewhere down south we went. Two hours away was this place called Mound Bayou. Mound Bayou was the first town incorporated in America by black people. So I said, we'll go over there and interview them. You know what I mean? Were people eager to work with you? People were eager to work with us because they understood the importance of being included in the American narrative. Now, black people, I'll I'll tell you what somebody told me. Somebody I worked with in New York. She said, Melvin, 
you better do it right because you know you only get one chance. <laughs> so, so for the black people, I had to get it right, you know. Did you feel a lot of pressure or a lot of responsibility? Well, I felt like what we were doing is important, and I had confidence that we were going to do it reasonably well. Well, I would say you did. I mean, it was 1,867 a- interviews. That, that's exactly right. Yep. Let's go to our first piece of tape. It's a story from a woman named Ella Reno. She's 77 years old, but this story takes place when she's 16. And she only had one thing on her mind, a boy. I was in love with Tyrone. My relationship was heating up. <laughs> and my parents knew that, so they had to take charge. Mother told me we would be spending the summer in the South. And that's where I was going to be introduced to my great-grandmother, Sylvia. She was 106 years old. And I just did not want to be spending my time with a senile old woman. But four days later, we were in Farmerville, Louisiana. Driving on this old road, I saw this log cabin. And I noticed on the front porch, that was her. She had a slender, you know, almost frail frame. But I still found her to be regal-looking. And at night, she would tell her stories. When the Civil War ended, she was my age. She was 16. She said even though she had freedom, not knowing how to read and write made her feel like a jigsaw puzzle with some of the pieces missing. And when she was 85 years old, she said, it stops here. She got help from grown-ups, you know, and sometimes from children, and she would study on her own. And then she told me that she had something special to show me. She went to a cedar chest at the foot of her bed, and she opened it up, and when I saw what it was, I was wondering, why is she bringing me this old tattered church fan? But when she turned it over, scrawled on the back of that fan, she had printed Sylvia. She told me that when she could spell her name, that was when she got her freedom. You know, she passed in 1965. But Grandma Sylvia is living on in my heart. So, Melvin, the mission statement of GRIO is, and I'm going to read it, to ensure that the voices, experiences, and life stories of African Americans will be preserved and presented with dignity. Could you talk a little bit about why that last part, with dignity, was important for you to have in there? Yes. Ultimately, the whole reason I work at StoryCorps is to have the opportunity to do something about representation. I think that there's a flow from how people are represented to how people understand specific cultures. And that's what I would say about Griot, that um, that's some of the thinking that goes into what we tried to do. That way of thinking, did that inform the questions that were asked in the interviews? Yes, it did. In fact, we um, created the questions in 
collaboration with folks from the National Museum for African American History and Culture. So some of the, one of the kinds of questions had to do with how did you feel when you wore that uniform of a U.S. Armed Services staff person? And this next story actually comes from a World War II veteran named Sam Harmon. He was interviewed by his grandson, Ezra Owume, in Washington, D.C. What was the saddest moment of your life? Early in the Navy, I was stationed in Norfolk, Virginia. One day, my shipmates and I decided to come to Washington to visit the capital. I drove the car. I didn't drink at the time, so they always used me to be the designated driver. While they were at the bars, I decided to sightsee. I walked around the monuments all day and was just tired out and decided that I would uh, go to movie, rest, and then pick them up later. It was right here on Pennsylvania Avenue. There was a movie house there. And I went up to buy a ticket. There was a glass there, a ticket seller behind it. And off of the glass reflected the Capitol Dome. And I just thought to myself, what a great way to end the day, drinking in all of this democracy. I offered the ticket. She was reading. She punched the machine. I reached my hand to get the ticket and lay down the money, and she pulled it back and said, you can't come in here. She saw my black hand and refused to sell me a ticket. The Capitol Dome was superimposed on her angry face, angered that I would have the temerity to ask to buy a ticket. And I just walked the streets crying all night. My country could draft me force me to fight a war, but you're not a good enough citizen to be able to come to a movie. That's the saddest, without any exception, it's the most painful recollection of anything that's ever happened to me that I have. What sort of other things were on the Griot question list? Another question that I inserted in there has to do with the fact that most black people I know have a story about someone in their family who was the first in something. Every black person I know has stories like that. So we put a question, did somebody in your family who experienced the first, can you please tell us a story about that? Let's listen to one of those stories now. It's about Wendell Scott. He was a race car driver during the Jim Crow era, and he was the first African-American to win a race at NASCAR's elite major league level. Scott's racing team was his family. They'd traveled to races together from their home in Virginia, and his son served as his pit crew. Wendell Scott died in 1990, but his son Frank and his grandson Warwick sat down for this conversation. He started racing in 1952, and, you know, it was like Picasso like a great artist doing his work. He was in that car, he was doing his work. And as children, we didn't have that leisure time. You know, we couldn't go to the playground. He said to us, I need you at the garage. I can remember him getting injured, and he'd just take axle grease and put it in the cut and keep working. But he wasn't allowed to race at certain speedways. He had death threats not to come to Atlanta. And they had to say, look, if I leave in a pine box, that's what I got to do, but I'm going to race. I can remember him racing in Jacksonville. And he beat them all. 
but they wouldn't drop the checkered flag. And then when they did drop the checkered flag, they had my father in third place. One of the main reasons that they gave was there was a white beauty queen, and they always kissed the driver. Did he ever consider not racing anymore? Never. That was one of my daddy's saying. When it's too tough, everybody else is just right for me. Like I can remember one time when uh, we were racing Atlanta 500, and um, he was sick. He needed an operation. And I said, Daddy, we don't have to race today. He whispered to me and said, lift my legs up and put me in the car. So I took my arms and put behind his legs, and I kind of act like I was hugging him and helped him in the car. He drove 500 miles that day. How did his racing career officially end? Well, <laughs> finances. You know, he couldn't get the support where other drivers that we were competing against had major sponsorship, providing them engineers, as many cars as they needed. He did everything that he did out of his own pocket. He always felt like someday he's going to get his big break. But uh, for 20 years, nobody mentioned Wendell Scott. At one point, it was like he never existed. But he didn't let it drive him crazy. I think that's what made him so great. Uh, He chose to be a race car driver, and he was going to race until he couldn't race no more. That's Frank Scott remembering his father, Wendell Scott, who's the first African-American to be inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Looking back now, it's been it's hard to believe it's been 10 years, but after 10 years, how do you think that working on Griot changed you personally? Well, it didn't change me exactly, but I'll say that it relates to a phenomenon of my life that once I actually learned there is such a thing as black history, which occurred in the biggest way for me, as a college freshman, you know, that's where I took a course on black literature. And that started kind of a lifelong passion around that stuff. And what never fails to amaze me is the regularity with which I learn about significant accomplishments and other things to be proud of that I never knew about. And then it's like, well, why were you surprised? Because so regularly I'm learning about stuff that I didn't know about, you know, that none of us know about, and we all suffer from not knowing. And that is the big deal. Melvin Reeves, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We're going to leave you with one final conversation from the Griot Collection. This one's from Jackson, Mississippi. And while our other stories have looked to the past, this one looks to the future. Here's fourth grader Aiden Sykes with his father, Albert. Do you remember what was going through your head when you first saw me? I remember when the doctor pulled you out. The first thing I thought was that he was being too rough with you. And he actually held you like a little Sprite bottle. And he was like, here's your baby. That was the most proud moment of my life. Don't tell your brothers, because it's three of y'all. But it was like looking at a blank canvas and just imagining what you want their painting to look like at the end, but also knowing you can't control the paint strokes. 
you know, the fear was just, I got to bring up a black boy in Mississippi, which is a tough place to bring up kids, period. But there are statistics that say black boys born after the year 2002 have a one in three chance of going to prison. And all three of my sons were born after the year 2002. So, Dad... Why do you take me to protest so much? (laughs) I think I take you for a bunch of reasons. One is that I want you to see what it looks like when people come together. But also that you understand that it's not just about people that are familiar to you, but it's about everybody. Did you know the work that Martin Luther King was doing was for everybody and it wasn't just for black people? Yes, I understand that. Yeah, so that's how you got to think. If you decide that you want to be a cab driver, then you got to be the most impactful cab driver that you can possibly be. Are you proud of me? Of course. You my man. I I just love everything about you, period. The thing I love about you, you never give up on me. That's one of the things I will always remember about my dad. Uh, You said it like I'm on the way out of here or like I'm already gone. So, Dad, what are your dreams for me? My dream is for you to live out your dreams. It's an old proverb that talks about when children are born, children come out with their fists closed because that's where they keep all their gifts. And as you grow, your hands learn to unfold because you're learning to release your gifts to the world. And so for the rest of your life, I want to see you live with your hands unfolded. That's Albert and Aiden Sykes. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact. Um, They're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. New details tonight on the sentencing of a Dietrich High School football player accused of a brutal locker room assault. 19-year-old John R.K. Howard will serve three years on probation and do 300 hours of community service. KBOI2's Kelsey McFarland is live. She's here in the studio to explain the judge's decision. Well, Howard was charged with sexually assaulting his black mentally disabled teammate in December of 2015. Prosecutors said Howard kicked a coat hanger into the teen's buttocks. In December of this year, Howard pleaded guilty to felony injury to a child as part of a plea deal. Still, new details released today in court shook things up. John R.K. Howard's attorney argues that this case was not about racism or rape. He says instead the victim backed up toward his client, who was sitting on a bench, with a hanger between his buttocks. The defense says Howard did kick the victim but did not kick the hanger on purpose. Twin Falls County Judge Randy Stoker says he read dozens of police reports. He says while the incident was inappropriate, nothing supports that this crime was sexual in nature. I am not going to sentence somebody based on innuendo and the public's perception of what they think this case is about. They have no 
no idea what this case is about. They couldn't. Because they haven't written stuff about it. The defense presented an audio recording of the victim from last May telling his two coaches that despite rumors, it didn't really happen how it was first reported. In a statement read in the courtroom, the victim's mother said she believes the incident damaged her son. She says, this is not the life we wanted for our son, and it wasn't the life he was going to have. But what he has gone through has made him regress so much. The victim's family has also sued the school district for $10 million in damages. They say their son endured months of racist taunts and physical abuse at the high school. Howard will likely serve his sentence in Texas, where he now lives, and the AG's office and the judge in the case received a massive number of complaints regarding this case, enough to fill almost 900 pages of an online document. Live in the studio, Kelsey McFarland, KBOI. hearing the terrifying 911 call from a child's birthday party at a park where prosecutors say a group waved guns and yelled racial slurs. Channel 2's Audrey Washington reports from Douglas County where she has reaction from the victim. Douglas County 911. Um, I'm sorry, we got some, um, some over here on For the first time, you're hearing the 911 call that was placed after a large group pulled up to a child's birthday party with Confederate battle flags. It happened on Camelton Street in Douglasville. Video from that day was posted to Facebook and quickly went viral. What's your name, honey? Please send somebody. Please send somebody before somebody gets shot. Douglasville police eventually arrived at the home. Both Kayla Norton and Jose Torres were charged with making racial slurs. Torres was accused of pointing a gun and threatening to kill the people at the party. The city of Douglasville is not going to tolerate this type of, of activity. Monday, Torres and Norton wept openly as they were sentenced. Torres will serve 13 years in prison. Norton got six years. Tuesday, I spoke with the victim, Melissa Alford, by phone and asked what she thought about the sentences. What do you think about that? No comments. During our conversation, she mostly thanked the judge and everyone who helped put Torres and Norton behind bars. And you believe justice was served in this case? Yes, ma'am. I said justice, sir. And once Torres and Norton serve their time and get out of prison, they will be permanently banned here in Douglas County. At the county courthouse, Audrey Washington, Channel 2 Action News. And you can listen to the raw audio of the 911 calls by going to our website, WSBTV.com. We've also posted the raw video from the incident that sparked the case. I've seen what's around the corner. I've seen what's over the horizon. And I promise you, you niggas have nothing to celebrate. I know I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. 
Good evening, Taz Boga's off tonight. Thanks for joining us. Our top story. A teenage boy says he's trying to stay strong after his girlfriend's house was broken into and the N-word was spray-painted in front of the word lover. Nigga! The police are still looking for the intruders and are treating it as a hate crime. Jane Jagannathan has this report. The N-word, spray-painted in large black letters. Tim Benner says he was shaken up after reading these words in his daughter's bedroom. I had to sit down. I had a moment, I broke down, and I was concerned on what kind of damage this would do to my daughter and her boyfriend. Benner's daughter, Ruby, and her boyfriend, Jaden, have been dating for about six months. It's not right, just that extra kick that they just tried to, tried to hit us with, and it's not, not what I'd like to see in this day and age. Someone's a different skin color doesn't change them, like any different than any other person. The break-in happened February 15th, and Benner found his home trashed. It happened in the middle of the day and in less than an hour. The thieves stole electronics, jewelry, and cash, and Benner believes whoever wrote the message knows his family or his daughter. We can certainly replace a lot of these items, but there's some mental scars that... Uh you know, these kids are going to have to deal with. It is something Jaden has dealt with before. The grade 10 student plays minor hockey and is the only black player on his Port Colburn team. We experience other teams and other people saying the words, but I never thought it would ever happen in our hometown. Niagara police say over the last two years, hate crimes have declined. In 2015, police investigated 13 hate crimes compared to just 10 last year. Jaden says the graffiti was shocking, but has a message for the person who wrote it. We're strong enough and you can try to break us down, but it won't work. Police are trying to determine how many people were involved in the break-in. Now, charges and convictions for hate crimes are quite rare. In Niagara, of the 23 hate crimes police have looked at over the last two years, no charges were ever laid. I'll send it back inside to you. We at the Anaheim Pond, we'll be out here playing hockey. I don't know about hockey. I mean, they got a couple of brothers playing hockey, but I don't know if they're going to let no real brothers play hockey. Kwame Mason, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. Congratulations on the film. Thank you. Thank you. It's my first film. So it was released in 2015, and it's had an interesting life since. Last year, a private screening in Washington, D.C., hosted by NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman? Yeah, that's uh, pretty exciting. So it was released to film festivals in 2015. We showed at the Edmonton International Film Festival, and I was doing the circuit for uh, about half a year. And then in uh, January, the NHL really got behind it, and we had a screening in Washington, D.C. with Commissioner Gary Bettman, uh, Deputy Commissioner Bill Daly, and Willie O'Ree was there, as well as Kevin Weeks and Anson Carter and myself. So that was a really great way to kick off the start of the film, and ever since I've just been on the road touring it, and um, you know, this being Black History Month and Hockey is for Everyone Month, I'm going to be back out on the road, uh, mainly in the United States, promoting the film, and uh, yeah, I'm really excited for people to really see the work that I did and learn a little bit more history uh, of uh, blacks, uh, blacks, more specifically black athletes in the game of hockey. 
Tell me about the pioneers, the first black players. Well, you know, the first black athlete to um, get a chance to play in the National Hockey League was a guy by the name of Willie O'Ree, who did this in 1958. And around that time, it was really, really difficult, as you can imagine, for black athletes, not only in hockey, but in all other sports. Uh, What was very interesting is that, you know, when Willie broke the color barrier, then it took another 14 years for another black athlete to play in the NHL. And uh, he goes by the name of Mike Marzen, who was a um, second-round draft pick of the Washington Capitals in 1974. So it's been a slow process for us, really breaking into the game of hockey, which is actually really surprising considering all the black athletes that are here in Canada. And I think it has a lot to do with access, mentorship, uh, opportunity. Because be it that Willie O'Ree was the first black athlete to play in the NHL, he will tell you that Herb Carnegie should have been the first black athlete to play in the NHL. And a lot to do with his color held him back from playing in the National Hockey League, which was a shame. And I always feel and I always tell people that if if Herb Carnegie was the first black athlete in the uh, National Hockey League, it would have changed the whole dynamics of the game because he was just that good. Montreal celebrates a great, great Montreal Canadian by the name of Jean Beliveau, who passed away uh, just a little while ago. Yes. And if you were to look back on interviews from Mr. Belleville, when he talks about Herb Carnegie, he'll tell you that Herb Carnegie was better than him. He looked up to Herb Carnegie as a mentor. So although we weren't able to um, see Mr. Carnegie in the National Hockey League, his legacy lives on, and I felt it was very important for me to make sure that his story was told in the film, and I hope people take a chance, uh, take the opportunity to Watch it and learn more and learn more about Herbert H. Carnegie. He was the player who didn't make it into the NHL. He did not make it into the NHL, and he should have been there. And uh, But, you know, these things happen. These things have happened. And he is able to come away with a, a legacy. Uh, he started up a foundation called Future Aces that's given millions of dollars to high school students going into uh, university, I uh, advise all your listeners who have high school students, who are high school students, to look up the Herbert H. Carnegie Foundation Future Aces. That's a great way to get some startup money for a university. Herbert H. Carnegie is also huge in the sense that we all know of hockey schools throughout Canada, throughout North America, throughout the world. Herbert H. Carnegie, a black man who is of Jamaican descent, who was born and raised in Toronto, was the first person to start up a hockey school in all of the world. And this is something nobody really speaks about, but this is something that we need to educate our peoples about because our peoples have a great history in, in all facets. I mean, if you had a chance to go see Hidden Figures, how many of you knew that it were was black ladies who helped with 
NASA. Well, yeah, I saw the film. It is pretty remarkable. It's uh, I, what I couldn't exactly. get over after seeing the film is it took fifty years to tell us this. Well, you know that's what suppression does. You know. And, well, uh, listen. Tell me. Tell imagine, me. You can imagine if that if that knowledge was given to young black girls fifty years ago. For sure. Yes. How many of them would have inspired? Would would, would have would have taken math more serious and inspire had inspiration to become uh, mathematicians and all that. So, you know. You played hockey for two years. What was your experience? You know, when I played hockey, you know, my main sport growing up was soccer. And, you know, my father understood the game. Hockey was something that my brother played and then I got into it through him. And, I, you know, we always played it in the streets and all this. And then, you know, once I got a chance to play it, in, uh, you know, on the ice, I enjoyed it, but I didn't understand the game and I had nobody to teach me the game. And so I was lost to it. So, you know, I stuck with what I knew. And when I got into junior high school, a lot of my friends, they didn't play hockey. A lot of my black friends didn't play hockey. And hockey was considered a white boy sport. So I pigeonholed myself. I put myself in this little box saying, well, this is for the white guys. This is not for the black guys. And it's a shame. I feel that we lost generations of young black athletes that could have really taken a hold of the game, but through finances, through the lack of role models, through the lack of education, through the lack of knowledge of the game, like myself, we didn't play. Have things changed? Things have changed. Yes, they have. If you look in, especially here in Toronto, you go to any hockey arena, you know, there's a lot more young black athletes picking up the game and really excelling. I think the only part that hasn't changed that I'm hoping will start to change is that we see a lot more blacks inside the offices of the the different hockey teams, like, you know, the Montreal Canadiens, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the New York Islanders, you know, some of these teams only have maybe one black person working in the head office. We need to change that. And I don't say we need to change that to take over. I just want to let people know that there's a different opportunity for you out there. If you're a young black boy or girl and you're in university and you're into marketing or sports marketing or want to be an entertainment lawyer, I want you to know that there is an option for you out there. And, you know, there's something that you can also aspire to work for. So um, being at that, you know, hockey is our, basically our national sport. There's so much opportunities out there for minorities. And I hope that one day we will see a lot more in the head offices. Because once we get a lot more numbers in the head offices, a lot more change will be done because there will be a lot more people pioneering the idea of the game of hockey as this, multicultural sports, especially here in Canada. You have a screening coming up in Vancouver, hosted by the NHL team there, the Vancouver Canucks. What are some of the most memorable reactions you've heard when you attend screenings? The best thing that I've gotten from people is when the parents come up and they say, I'm so glad my son or my daughter has been able to see this because We've been having problems in our team or in our association or our league. And a lot of the times these kids feel like they're by themselves and they have no reference point. After seeing this film, they have a reference point. 
like nobody can tell them that they are a fly in a pail of milk. You know, they come from a long-standing history in this game, and it's something that they can be proud of. And I think a lot of parents, after watching this, they feel that there is something that they can have a conversation with their children with. And the best thing that I love is when parents say to me that this is something that their family would love to sit at home and watch. And you can do that now by just going on Amazon or iTunes and searching Soul on Ice, Past, Present, and Future, and uh, picking up the film and, you know, make it a family event. Make it, make it something that you guys can sit down and watch and discuss after. And, you know, I'm very transparent. My, my, my email and my phone number is on my website, and I encourage everybody to just go there and give me a call and let me know what they think or, you know, if they need some advice. Like, you know, I've been able to connect with a lot of, of um, people in the hockey world now that I can help because that's one of the biggest things that hold our people back from the game is a lack of knowledge, and the knowledge should be shared. And, you know, I try my best to connect people together to, uh, to, to share ideas. I mean, just this past Friday I went to – Chesswood Arena here in Toronto with Kevin Weeks' father, Carl Weeks, and, you know, we ran into a few, you know, fathers, black fathers, and Mr. Weeks is sitting there and just having a conversation and letting them know, hey, do this, make sure you do that, and that's what we need, and, you know, we'll see see the progression of the uh, young black athlete in the next couple years, as long as we are able to share knowledge and share our information and share our history. And, you know, I'm so proud that I can actually be a part of that. Uh, I'm calling you, of course, from Montreal. And I have to say I'm not sure Montrealers have yet gotten over the trade that saw P.K. Subban go Mm -hmm. to, uh, go to, where did he go to? He went to Nashville. Nashville Predators in exchange for Shea Weber. See, I don't even Um, want to remember it. (laughs) Yeah. And you have Malcolm Subban in your film. Yeah, I've got Malcolm Subban in my film. Uh, Jordan Subban makes an appearance, and uh, Carl and Maria Subban, the the parents, are in the film as well. So what did you make of the trade? It didn't surprise me because hockey is a a very team first. I think there might have been some problems between PK and the team. I'm not really sure. I can't really speculate, but it didn't really surprise me. Um, I think... I look at that trade just like when the Edmonton Oilers traded Wayne Gretzky back in the days to the Los Angeles Kings. And a lot of people in Canada were shocked. A lot of people in Edmonton were disappointed. But when Wayne Gretzky went to Los Angeles, one thing happened. He was able to be an ambassador to the game in Southern California. Now California has three hockey teams. PK going out to Nashville, he has an opportunity to now reach out to the young black athletes in Nashville and say to them, hey, you don't have to just play basketball. You don't have to just play football or baseball. You could play this game of hockey because there are people that look just like you that play this game, and I'm here to show you that the game is for everyone, and you have an opportunity just like I have the opportunity. So as much as it disappointed the fan base in Montreal, I look at it 
for the bigger picture, and I think and I hope that PK takes this opportunity to spread the game of hockey in Nashville and be an ambassador. Not to say that he's got to go up there and say, I'm the black guy, so everybody talk to me. But, you know, the truth is the truth. In Nashville, Tennessee, when he goes to certain areas and they ask him what does he do, and he says that I'm a hockey player, the first thing they're going to say is, what? You play hockey? And that's the start of the conversation. And that may inspire somebody to say, hey, why don't you pick up this game and see what you can do with it? And then 15, 20 years down the road, you never know. Plus, he also can give the black audience, in, the black sports audience in Nashville, a new game that they can be into. So I think it's, uh, I think it's a good thing. And, you know, it's not like Montreal isn't doing well. So they're fine. Kwame Mason, thank you for telling me about it. You're welcome. You're welcome. I, I appreciate you guys uh, having me here, and, uh, and I, I really hope that your audience gets a chance to watch the film. It's Soul on Ice, Past, Present, and Future. It's out on iTunes and Amazon. And, um, yeah, check out the website, soulonicemovie.com. Reach out to me and say hello. She's my friends, but I'm in France. <laughs> I'm just saying. This isn't exactly the standard way that most people in public life use the word black. But use it, people do. A lot. This is America. Emma Jacobs has been thinking about this quite a bit. Perhaps more than most, because for the past year or so, she's been watching the United States from the outside. The campaigns, the election the early days of the presidency. She's been watching it all from France. And as it turns out, she came across the word black quite a bit in France. So like the French word for black, noir? No, actually the English word black, which shows up in conversation in French in France. Uh, To give you a sense of how it's used, I went to ask around at a small film festival called Le Black Movie Summer. Black is a word that that many French people now use commonly, you know. It's just like, it's so common. Link Bertomieu is a dancer. I think it's about culture. It's about, it's a lot about music. But most of the time, it's just a, a trendy way to, to say noir, in fact. A trendy way to say noir, with associations with African-American music and culture, agrees Katia Turin, but also... Un peu mieux perçu que le mot noir. Black, she thinks, can be a bit better perceived than the word noir. She describes it as less in-your-face or less direct. I tend to think of this as sort of like putting the word in quotes when you use the English, like, okay, it's a kind of faulty artificial racial category, but, you know, black. Oh, right. So so it's it's like you're not really owning the word fully, the word black. You're, you're just, you're recognizing that that it's not a perfect description of what you're trying to say. Is that it? Yeah, essentially, or or just acknowledging it's something you might experience as being perceived as black, but sort of questioning it at the same time. I'll actually let Jean Beeman explain this a little more. She's a sociology professor at Purdue who studies France and specifically ethnicity and upward mobility among descendants of North African immigrants. And in the course of a lot of fieldwork, she's heard a lot of people who she thinks... They're avoiding using a term that identifies a person's race in conversation. 
to say I'm African-American, it would be considered impolite. You would just instead say she's an American woman. This is not to say no one would ever say this, but she's onto a general trend. Marking someone as anything besides, you know, gender or their nation-based identity is seen as sort of marking difference. And pointing out differences between people in France, that is not polite. So it struck Beeman all the more when she started interviews for her research back in 2008 to hear people use the word black. That's when I first started hearing it. And I remember directly asking my respondents, well, why use this term and not use noir? And like, and not, in other words, why use the word, uh, you know, the English word black and not the French word for black? And it was just, and people just explained it very matter of factly of like, oh, well, it's considered very rude to use noir. It's, you know, but you, so black is much more acceptable. Wait a minute. I feel like I got it and now I don't get it anymore. Like, how did this word get into the vocabulary in the first place? Yeah. So actually, first, there's some history that helps explain why the French don't like using certain words that to Americans might seem fairly neutral. We're talking about racial classifications that were made by French society in the past. And these enabled really ugly things, particularly before and during World War II. When the French social sciences, first and foremost, uh, ethnology were based on the existence of races at a time when the colonial empire was uh, thriving. This is Pape Ndiaye, a historian at Sciences Po, a university in Paris. He's talking about during World War II, the Nazis and the Vichy collaborationists collected ethnic information and, of course, used it to deport people to concentration camps. And then there's a ton of racial ideology used to justify and organize the French colonies in sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, and parts of Asia. So after the end of the war, the decolonization period, the French uh, believed that we all had entered a new uh, period during which we live in a colorblind uh, society that uh, skin color, or even worse, uh, racial uh, um, differences uh, do not matter or do not uh, exist. So there are these idealistic good motives that become an early source of the skittishness around differentiating people, which shows up today in all sorts of different ways. The French government today does not have any line on its census for race, and that's by law. Basically, for a lot of people, it's the less said about race in France, the better. But at the same time, the French have always been fascinated by racial issues in the U.S., where not only do we have racial statistics, but this long, long history of confrontations around race relations. And when the word black first comes to France, it's among an intellectual crowd in the 60s and 70s. They're following American news like the Black Power Movement, but it's niche. The word itself doesn't get much traction. Until, let's skip forward, the big development that really establishes black in the French vocabulary comes much later with the arrival of American rap and hip-hop. This music gets especially popular early on in poor areas surrounding Paris that are called the banlieue. 
by the 80s, um, the, the banlieue regions have like a lot of, you know, you'll have North, and, North African and African populations that in some places become the majority in certain projects. Laurent Dubois is a historian at Duke. He says rap and hip hop catch on and inspire a lot of young French artists in these areas. The major question for a lot of young people in France has to do with basically being kind of targeted by the police, um, feeling, you know, in a sense, like an occupied territory in their projects and increasingly in conflict with the police. And since that's such a common theme also in American hip hop, I think that in some ways the translation moment really becomes that um, American hip hop is a way of talking about the experience of being a kind of uh, minority population targeted for being black. There's that kind of sense. There can be a similarity between like life in the projects in France and life in a, you know, in a black community in America. Franco Lolia grew up in one of those big, troubled housing projects outside Paris. We talked in a cafe in Paris where he told me that early on, the first really high-achieving black men he remembers encountering were both African-American. Carl Lewis and ensuite Michael Jackson. Carl Lewis, the 80s Olympic track athlete, and of course, Michael Jackson. Ces deux personnes they were the two uh, black men who could give me a positive image of what black is supposed to represent. The woman interpreting for Lolia is his friend Diafra Diallo. The word black, they go on to explain, took on that allure connected with black American success in sports and music. But simultaneously, Lolia said he and his friends identified more in their own personal lives with other aspects of American culture. Le, le premier film qui a causé beaucoup de ravages ici, beaucoup, hein, c'est euh, Warriors. The first movie that really uh, had an impact here uh, on us was the Warriors. Warriors was released by Paramount in 1979. You're still looking for us? We found what we're looking for. <laughs> no. no. The Warriors are an actually multiracial gang from Coney Island. They wear leather vests and a lot of big hair because it is 1979. And the drama is that they have to make it home across the city and all these different turfs of rival gangs after they're framed for killing another gang leader. The film is not remembered for its great dialogue. You warriors are good. Real good. C'était vraiment nul, huh? It was a very, very bad movie. And now I think. But at the time, the warriors really resonated. Lolia and his friends, they also hung out in gangs of young guys from their own neighborhoods. Multitude de choses que j'ai pas l'habitude de. Okay, so uh, I don't really want to say uh, what the, the, all the bad things that I did, but uh, what I can say was like a confrontation with uh, whatever was the source of uh, authority. But the reason Lolia brought up this period with me at all was because of the name his gang chose to go by back then. The Black Boy. That was the name of his gang. The Black Boys. Le groupe d'à côté, c'était les B-Boys. Uh, and another group of black guys who were in another uh, uh, town nearby was called uh, B-Boy. B-Boys. Parce que c'était uniquement à travers ce genre de représentation-là qu'on pouvait... But it was only through this English word, through this uh, English word black, that we could find a minimum of uh, pride. 
Since then, Lilia has come to feel very differently about the use of the word black in France. We'll come back to that. But to continue our history of how this word went mainstream, back to Laurent Dubois of Duke, who I actually got in touch with because he wrote a book about soccer. It's called Soccer Empire, and it's about the wildly successful French national team that won the World Cup in 1998. The first World Cup ever victory for France. They win, win, win at home. They win because of basically black and North African players scoring the goals. You know, Lilian Turam in the semifinal and Zidane in the final. You know, so suddenly these these figures become you know massive heroes in society. And the slogan that uh, that comes out is to describe the the French team as black, blanc, beurre. Black, blanc, beurre is a play on the stripes of the French flag, which are bleu, blanc, rouge, or blue, white, and red. But then beurre, which is a slang term for North African, replaces red or rouge. So you have black, blanc, beurre which you can just make out a fan chanting to the TV cameras in the absolute chaos around the Arc de Triomphe after the 98 final. I was never able to figure out, like, you know, who first coins it or, you know, find a journalist or something. It emerges, like, I don't know, from the culture, I guess, in a way. But Dubois points out this is the same time as the rise of the anti-immigrant French right. The far-right leader back then, Jean-Marie Le Pen, questions whether the players know how to sing the national anthem, the Marseillaise. And so the slogan also becomes a way to express support for this exceptionally diverse team that is killing it for France on the soccer field. It also evokes this bigger, idealistic vision of France itself as the coming together of these groups. Black, blanc, beurre. Everyone heard that slogan in France, you know the celebrations for 1998 World Cup. You know, everybody says this is like the biggest celebration since the liberation of Paris. So because of that, I think the term black gets really sort of stuck in the imaginary as black is just a way to describe, you know, people of African descent in the society in a way that's positive. And so it becomes this word that all kinds of people use instead of noir. Not just people of color in the banlieue, but French people of all different stripes. But today, the hopefulness of that Black Blanc Beurre slogan It's something people look at with nostalgia, but can also seem naive to a lot of people. Because in case you haven't noticed, France has not solved its racial tensions. The change in the 90s and 2000s was a subtle one, and everyone's not suddenly at ease talking about race or religion. This is partly because the hostile political environment that inspired that slogan has persisted and arguably hardened. French historian Pape Ndiaye says today can feel a lot like the 90s, before that unifying World Cup victory. We uh, also live in a specific political moment when the extreme right and the National Front are very strong. The National Front, that's France's far-right party that's been gaining vote share since the mid-90s. 
issues related to identity being raised all the time, national identity, what makes us French, and so on and so forth, so that in a way any word or distinction that may imply that French society is dividing along uh, racial lines is often seen as suspect. But at the same time, there are these problems that follow racial lines. Jai tends to talk about these as shared experiences of heavy-handed policing, housing, and job discrimination. In many ways, French Blacks want to be visible and uh, invisible. They want to be invisible because they don't want to be subjected to any form of discrimination. They want to be like anyone. They don't want to be singled out by the police, for example, in a train station. But they also want to be visible. They want the issues dealt with that are to do with their being black. So it is this kind of minority paradox, visibility and invisibility, which is at the heart of the use of the word noir, sometimes the word black. Ndiaye isn't against the word black, but he thinks noir is just more accurate, more precisely about the French experience. He also points out its use in a positive way by historic cultural movements of French-speaking African and Caribbean intellectuals. Franco Lolia, who used to be part of the Black Boys, who is now in his mid-40s, has come to feel very strongly that he doesn't like the word black. He's now a social worker and also an anti-racism activist. He says black does conjure up American success, but it also implies that racial inequities are somehow not French. The perverted effect of using black instead of noir is just to erase the racism in France and to pretend that racism is only an Anglophone thing, only an American thing. So far from being academic, language, he thinks, really affects how people identify problems and how easy or difficult it is to mobilize and do something about them. And Jean Beeman, the sociologist, says another argument for finding the right language, whatever that is, to talk about what Americans would think of as racial or ethnic identities, is that more recently, France has come to overemphasize religion, Islam in particular. Islam is just everything is coded as Islam. Every problematic threat, anything seen as a threat to French identity or French society is coded in the level of Islam. When I think people are really talking about race and ethnicity, but are, you know, of course, it's not polite or not acceptable to do so openly. Unfortunately, she thinks that the conversation about religion has become such a big part of the news cycle and public debate. There's not a lot of energy left right now for tackling other issues. Beeman pointed out that recently some young black activists in France have started to use the phrase Black Lives Matter. It was chanted at protests after the death of a young man in police custody. It piggybacked on the American conversation about police-involved violence that has gotten a lot of coverage in France. Maybe a help. But it also comes with American baggage. Comparing the French experience with an American situation that, at least in the area of police violence, the activists themselves believe is much, much worse. As an example, shortly after the death of the young man outside Paris, someone from his own neighborhood, he described police in the U.S. to me as shooting black men like chickens. 
he mimes shooting at the ground with his fingers. This is the complicated thing about taking the United States as an inspiration, linguistically or otherwise. It's simultaneously seen as this place where blocks can be very successful, but French people are also very, very aware of the problems Black Americans deal with. Talking with racial ethnic minorities, there's very much a sense of a sort of pride in what they consider the sort of American civil rights movement and the trajectory that, you know, one could say, or I guess they would say, led from, you know, Martin Luther King to Barack Obama being our first African-American president. But what's interesting is that in, in that, they don't want a sort of American-style identity politics. So I think there's really a wrestling in French minority communities of how do we ever, you know, see our version of a French Barack Obama, for example, without the sort of the exact same identity politics that we have in the United States. And the question running underneath all this, still to be determined, is what vocabulary should France adopt? whether it's black or something else or both, what are the terms going to be that best describe French, not necessarily American realities, but also challenge the French status quo? We need that perfect hair. What exactly are you, man? What's going on? I want to be a cop. I want to be a cop. These stories of things like this that would happen to other moms in my heart would go out to them. But until you actually walk in their shoes, you have no idea. Her daughter was found dead inside a sheriff deputy's home. After months without answers, the Dallas mom called the I-team. Investigator Ginger Allen digs into this mysterious death. May 20th, the Nacogdoches County Sheriff Department rushed to the home of one of its own. A deputy had just made a gruesome discovery inside his son's bedroom. Somebody there, he believes, has shot themselves. 26-year-old Christian Hobson, the girlfriend of the deputy's son, lay in a pool of blood, shot in the head. The gun in her hand, her car parked out front, and signs of forced entry at the back door. No one else around. You were told this is suicide. Immediately, they told the my Yes. But Lavira Hobson, Christie's mom, is convinced her daughter, an aspiring actress and college student, would not take her own life. She never would have committed suicide. She never would have taken her own life. No, I know better than that. The day before she was found, Hobson had driven from Dallas to Nacogdoches to work a big event at this restaurant. That afternoon, the club owners sent Hobson to the local liquor store, where receipts show she purchased supplies around 5 p.m. She didn't come back that night, so we expect her next morning. We all start calling her to try to see where she is. We knew the instant she didn't respond back almost immediately that something was wrong. The deputy's son told investigators after Hobson's supply run that the two of them met at a hotel where they argued 
and Hobson left without her purse or cell phone. That was the last time she was seen alive. Less than 24 hours later, her body was found at his house. Because the case involved the home of local law enforcement, the sheriff immediately called in the Texas Rangers. That was nine months ago. I need answers. I need to know what happened to my baby. I need to know. She could not get answers, but just days after the I-team started investigating, the Rangers ruled this a suicide. The county closed the case, and it finally turned over these documents to us, revealing details about its first few hours in this investigation. Sometimes it's hard for family members to accept the facts, and I understand that. Just last week, Sheriff Jason Bridges sat down to talk to the I-team. I can assure them, as a sheriff in Nacogdoches County and as the Texas Rangers, that this investigation was thoroughly done. Do you understand why the family and friends have questions? Yes, because I have questions. The I-team also took the report to crime analyst and former police chief Catherine Smith-Torres. I think that there are red flags. Among those, the autopsy report, which shows Hobson had a blood alcohol level three times the legal limit. It just doesn't sound logical that someone that drunk was able to drive to the home able to find the tools to break into the back door and able to find the gun, load the gun, and shoot themselves. Torres also questions how right-handed Hobson shot herself on the left side and why the county allowed an investigator to collect evidence at the scene after revealing she was once married to the deputy's son. She should have never been there at all. That taints your scene. I know the appearance of how that looks. It does not look good. It was a very short marriage. She told the ranger as soon as he arrived. She was supervised through the entire time that evidence was collected. She was never by herself. Sheriff Bridges tells us the deputy and his family were ruled out as suspects early on. And he says blood splatter analysis, interviews, and other evidence support a suicide. Hobson's friends and family are not convinced. I won't the truth. I want to know what happened. You want me to just go away quietly like nothing has happened. You want me to accept this? I will never accept it. Hobson's family has hired a private investigator and is now considering filing a lawsuit. We are waiting for the Rangers report, which is public information now that the case is closed. So far, the Rangers have only sent us this statement saying, after a detailed investigation, the Rangers report was submitted to the county district attorney's office, and it concluded there is no evidence to suggest foul play here. All right, Ginger, what about the boyfriend and the deputy in this case? Well, neither the boyfriend nor the deputy wanted to talk to us on camera. The boyfriend would only say that Hobson's family cannot accept what happened. We need the Rangers report. Lots of questions. Yeah, and, and clearly one looks at the mom's side of things, and you can completely understand the feelings there, obviously. And the, but the police at the same time say, we've done a thorough investigation. Still wait on this new report to come. Thank mm -hmm. you. You bet. Ginger Allen, appreciate that. Seattle's a great place to visit because it has... I guess you could say a little bit of everything, but I like to think of it as a lot of everything. This just in, the FBI will now review the case of a young Muslim man found hanging from a tree near Lake Stevens last month. Kara Sevens Essex Porter is live right now in Lake Stevens in Essex. The man's family told you they believe the facts in this case just don't add up. 
That's exactly what they are saying, and this is uh, the woods where this tragic event took place at the beginning of January. The young man's body found on January 9th. Now, I talked with Lake Stevens police, and they tell me that they did thoroughly investigate this case. They didn't close the case until about a week ago, but the young man's family says much more needs to be done. Ben Cato was 18 years old. His father says he did not seem suicidal when he disappeared on November 26th of last year. No history of uh, depression, anxiety, uh, any psychological breakdown at all whatsoever. So he was a very young, happy young man. In January, Cato's body was found hanging from a tree in a wooded area near his Lake Stevens home. There were no other injuries, so the medical examiner concluded he died by suicide. But after the family pressed, the ME changed the cause of death to undetermined. The ME's report gives two reasons. A canine search of the same area weeks earlier failed to find his body. And the rope he was hanged with was tied an unusual 50 feet high in the tree. So a coalition led by the Washington chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations asked the FBI to investigate. Today we are careful not to rush to judgment. Historically, lynchings were often deemed quickly as suicide without the benefit of full inquiry. The family says, among other things, there are four co-workers who were not interviewed before the Lake Stevens police closed the investigation. We just want to make sure that the expertise, the experience, and the human resources of the FBI are brought in to make sure everything is uh, comprehensively investigated, no stone is left unturned. Now, in a statement, the FBI told me that it is reviewing the circumstances of Cato's death in consideration of federal law, and if warranted, agents may conduct further investigation. But the statement makes clear that this review is not an investigation itself. It will not necessarily result in the opening of an investigation. We'll keep tabs on all this and let you know exactly what happens. Reporting live in Lake Stevens, Essex Porter, Cairo 7 News. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, March 4th, 2017. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, uh, counter racist suggestions, observations. The number to dial is 641 715 the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. We are listener supported counter racist radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Listener supported counter racist radio. Once you check the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop us an email and we will get you a physical mailing address, new mailing address. Just making sure folks are updated, new mailing address. Uh, just check before you uh, mail out anything to make sure you have uh, current mailing information. Much obliged.
With that, a few things uh, before we get to the callers. Uh, first of all, I want to give folks uh, the information again. Uh, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, uh, there's going to be a memorial uh, in her honor. I think folks uh, should remember uh, Sabrina Johnson. She was on the program uh, in 2016. Uh, she was a student uh, and longtime uh, confidant of Dr. Welsing uh, for many years, and uh, she's one of the folks uh, organizing the event. Uh, officially, it is a commemoration and call to action in honor of Dr. Welsing. Uh, there will also be a birthday tribute to her, uh, and they're contemplating uh, a fundraising component. Uh, this is scheduled for Saturday, March 18th, 7 p.m. Eastern, at the Thurgood Marshall Center in Washington, D.C., March 18th, 7 p.m. Eastern, Thurgood Marshall Center, Washington, D.C. And you can email Miss Johnson. Her email address is Sabrina Johnson 27 at earthlink.net. Sabrina Johnson 27 at earthlink.net. For the people listening to this broadcast, Please just use your rewind button <laughs> to get the email. People will sometimes they will listen to the archive and email me for that information as opposed to just this is recorded. You can just rewind and play it back as many times as you need to to write down her email address. Much obliged. Um, that was one. Second thing, uh, the information uh, about the black male uh, man. 18-year-old teen uh, right here uh, in Seattle, uh, which is where Gusty has been broadcasting the cows from for eight years now. Um, he was found in January, January 10, uh, unless I have been misinformed. Uh, two months, just that alone, I want people to think about that in this climate, right, with all of the conversation about racism explicit and people you know out demonstrating and what they call riots uh and everything uh for years now that this has been going on trayvon martin and sandra bland all of these other uh incidents that people have been talking about ferguson and baltimore and everything that you could have a black teen a black muslim teen no less found hanging under suspicious circumstances and it takes two months for that to become news. I reside uh, in this area. I check the Seattle Times every day. Uh, sometimes, frequently, multiple times a day. Uh, I also check the News Tribune, uh, which is another uh, local newspaper. Uh, I listen to, or I, well, yeah, I listen to hyphen check K-U-O-W, which is uh, one of the local uh, public radio outlets uh i used to check kplu i think now it's knkx uh i think just changed it up uh but i check them on a regular basis like i check a lot of local uh news outlets which i encourage listeners to do all the time uh to be informed about things that are happening uh right around you i'd said that before that i used to do a really bad job of just being informed about you know things that were happening in my neighborhood racism white supremacy right on my block right on my street uh but I said, man, maybe I missed it. You know, shame on that. What a disgrace. You know, you should get off the air right now. If a black teen is found hanging in your area and you don't even know about this to report on it, like what a disgrace. But I checked and there was no information. Uh, they had 
one report in January just that an unidentified teens uh, remains had been found. And that was it. They didn't have a whole lot of, you know, other identifying information. That was about it. And there was no follow up. They didn't have anything uh, else. The Seattle Times, unless I missed it, they still haven't done uh, a updated uh, report on this. And this is as of me checking Saturday March 4th, relatively early in the afternoon Pacific time. Uh, they still haven't done uh, anything. It was KUOW uh, was the site that I first saw this on, and that was in March. Uh, I posted it, and they were one of the first. Most of the subsequent reports that I've seen about this uh, incident uh, have been after the KUOW report, which is one of the local uh, public radio outlets. But just that in, a, in and of itself, uh, I think, demonstrates the power of white supremacy. And I also just, this is an incident. I have to just remind folks, I think some time ago, um, there was, or I think there are, there were several folks, cows listeners, uh, who, you know, they took the position that, uh, black males, I guess a part of black male privilege, uh, is that when you have these sort of tragedies, uh, black males, uh, they will get a lot of attention. Uh, if, you know, they should be killed by the police or something like that, they'll get attention. Whereas if the same thing happens to a black female, that won't be the case. Uh, I would say this to me demonstrates exactly uh, why I said, no, I do not think that that is the case at all. There are way too many instances of black males, black females, black children, black elderly, any black person in the universe it is very easy for racists to kill you or thousands of black people and nobody will talk about it. It won't generate any protests. There won't be any hashtags. There won't be any t-shirts that happens to black people in huge numbers every day. That is what racism, white supremacy is about. Uh, and that's not even the first time uh, this incident uh, with this 18 year old, that's not even the first incident that I can recall in recent times where an out and out lynching. I'm not talking about, you know, a metaphor. I'm talking about a black male being found hanging and it got almost no attention. Uh, folks remember. Oh, yeah. Do you remember Khalid Flimban uh, 2012 found hanging from a swing set in California? Because I remember most folks, even most of the people that I had cows listeners in California didn't know about that case. 2012, not ancient times, 2012. And they said the same thing. Suicide. Oh, well, moving forward. The case that happened with Frederick Germain Carter. Uh, if folks recall, we had uh, the image from his hanging. Uh, we had used that as a part of our logo, part of our artwork with the cows for a while to remind people. Uh, of that case, that was another one. Uh, we did multiple programs uh, on Frederick Jermaine Carter uh, on what happened to him, but that was 2010, very close to where Emmett Till was lynched. And it did not generate very much attention at all. Uh, most people hadn't heard of it then. I suspect a lot of people listening right now either haven't heard of the case uh, or don't remember it. But uh, yeah, that is what, you know, can happen under the system of racism, white supremacy, and does happen regularly uh, but I would encourage folks to uh, keep up with the case uh, share information and if nothing else another reminder why it's important to talk to young folks about racism white supremacy because racist man racist woman racist child they will target your children as well that's it 
uh, if we could refrain from using metaphors. I think Betsy DeVos, Secretary of Education, great lesson this week. Metaphors. I didn't have a sound clip about that, but this suspected race soldier, one of uh, President Donald J. Trump's uh, appointments, uh, she said that historically black colleges and universities, they were uh, pioneers in offering choice to parents, academic choice to parents. And she is, uh, unless I'm in error, she is a proponent of uh, having a voucher system so that parents can take uh, X amount of dollars and they can apply that voucher to, you know, whatever school of that choice of their choice, even, you know, a private school. Uh, and a lot of folks have concerns that, you know, this will, you know, erode drastically, maybe permanently erode uh, public education. But uh, yeah, she made this comment saying that HBCUs, that they were pioneers in offering parents choice. And uh, HBCU officials came out and rebuked her. And this is exactly why I say we should be very mindful uh, because racist, what I say every week, racist, they will deliberately use metaphors and analogies, similes, comparisons. They will deliberately pull a Betsy DeVos and use these sort of comparisons between two things that are absolutely not equivalent. Uh, they do this sort of thing all the time. They do it deliberately uh, to practice racism, white supremacy. It causes confusion. It makes it very difficult to get an accurate understanding of things. Victims, one, we have been educated by suspected race soldiers like Betsy Devo, so we pick up a lot of their habits, and I think a lot of times, too, because we are still learning, we haven't really come to you know conclusions about some things. I know I haven't, and in that confusion, I think sometimes we grasp at metaphors to convey our thoughts, feelings, suggestions, or ideas, and sometimes those metaphors do not adequately communicate our thoughts. So if we could try to be as explicit, direct as possible uh, when sharing, that would be appreciated. I will prompt about that. Thank you kindly. If you could take about five minutes to share whatever thoughts uh, you have to share, uh, that would be great. That'll make sure everybody gets uh, an opportunity to speak. Uh, if you could share one time and then allow everybody else to get their one turn. And then uh, if you have additional comments you want to share, we can get those in also. Thanks again. The number to dial 641-715-3640. The code is 56 four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate first few folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open feel free to chime in hello yes sir hey Man, I want to thank you, man. I couldn't have you program, man. And I appreciate everybody that called me. I'm going to be kids, right? And, and, um, and really, man, it just, it just, you know, all about the program and the teaching. It's called, because he, he's taking people like me to, you know, uh, a higher, you know, trying to understand 
thing, it just really listen, you know, and paying attention to everything. Now, I've been doing different things to really confine me, and I ain't been able to call in to keep up with everybody, man. And, man, man, I, I, I don't know, but I'm glad for this right here because he's not going to say so I'm going to say in a little bit, and we don't know, you know, most of us don't know, but I think we do know, but, well, I don't, I can't even say that, but I mean, we don't know about it, we don't want to be, there ain't nobody, we don't want to be, there ain't nobody, we don't want to be, Man, Mr. Fuller say, man, it's overwhelmed. And when you look at it, it's like Obama. And and that's why I'm glad you always say you don't put up with no bashing on black people, right? Because when you really look at it, Obama... It's the best president that we ever have seen under the system of white supremacy, even with white people. You ain't never had no white president better than him under white supremacy to even help white people. Obama helped the white people more than Bush or any white person under white supremacy. Now, but see, black people want to, we did, I, me too. I used to tell my mom, I said, what he did? Cash for clockers? Uh, uh, healthcare? See, I, I, I'm, I, yeah, I've been fighting these crackers behind healthcare because I, cause, cause I put uh, zero dollars on the income because I was on Medicaid. I wouldn't even know Obamacare, I don't know. I, I, I had food stamps and Medicaid. I put zero dollars. Now they didn't tell me with their for government property. <laughs> but look, though, Obama. Nah, but see, but guess what? This go to show that white people they don't want the world to be correct because see. He could have did. Anybody could have did it. Anybody can do it if you love. See, nah, I will say this. I done seen some white people, nah, everything through what I've been going through, white people still be coming let me, uh, I still got my dogs, right? And that go back to what uh, Dr. Wilson was saying. You got the word three times as hard. Because, see, I be looping all them crackers and them black folks up there where I work at. But I got to go in there and I got to move. I'm 37. You see what I'm saying? All eyes on me, though. See, I got the, I got the eyes on me because I don't talk to nobody. I don't mess around and I hustle. And I go to jail and get out. And sometimes I don't come to work. And 
I still got my dog, man. But people, white people, they don't want to see the world be right. They don't want to see this world be right, man. But forget all that, man. I'm glad. Hey, man, listen. And I'm going to... And I'm gonna and I'm gonna put something in there too, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, put my little bit in there. In there. Just give me a minute. I gotta go to court a couple more times. And everything. I'm 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 gonna cock out in, in uh, on the seventh. And everything gets right. I'm gonna throw me some money in there, cause man, I really appreciate your program, man. And you doing a good job. And I wanna say thank you to hey, this key man seven one three. Man, I'm in North Dakota, but I'm from Houston, Texas, man. Listen, and I and I appreciate everybody because I be listening too, man. It's a lot of people probably be listening, but they can't call in and get online when they post too. But see, everybody be online because I'm gonna tell you something. People up here be online. They know when you be in jail. They know when you get out. They already know what you done went to jail and what you done been in for. So there's a lot of people be online. They might can't call, but they be online and they know. And you done been up this this the eight year anniversary. I know I've been on about a couple of years, man. I just want to say, man, I really appreciate it, man. And everybody got to do what we need to do and keep and get the word out, cause because something got to change. This is it. Okay, I'm going to move my line. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you for the uh, commendations uh, for the listeners as well. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, uh, line should be open. Uh, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Um, uh, good to see you guys and um, to all the callers and the listeners. I have to uh, mirror the previous caller. It's good to hear from you. Um, I wish you all the best with the uh, the court situation that you're dealing with. And um, I've missed you for the last uh, few weeks, so I'm glad to hear from you. And um, you sound okay, so I'm hoping that everything works out with you as far as the court is, is concerned. And I must mirror um, what he said. Uh, I greatly appreciate you. Uh, that's the work you do, the show. Um, you're a big inspiration for a lot of the stuff that I do. I mean, I've been doing counter-racist work before I encountered the show, but um, once I came in contact with it, you just really became a, an inspiration for, for just as, as far as diligence, um, black self-respect, um, and just the ability to try and be in touch with the with understanding the plight of black people wherever they may reside, and I appreciate you for that as well as the calls on the show. I appreciate each and every one of you. I've talked about that before. Um, great clips this evening. There was a, a, I guess there was a, a whole length of clips from the, the GRIO program where they have the recordings, I guess, at the Library of Congress. And I found the clip about the uh, black female who went to stay with her 106-year-old grandmother um, who, I guess, couldn't couldn't read and write. And um, over time, I taught herself and it was just a very deeply touching story, and it just brings home a lot of the suffering that our people have been put through under the system. And, and when she had discussed the fact that her grandmother said when she learned to spell her name, and I believe it was on a, um, a, a, church, a church fan, that when she learned to spell her name, that she, she, saw, she thought of that <clears throat> excuse me, as freedom. And 
just how important it was for us to have the ability to read um, and write, but specifically read and being able to get ideas and understandings about the world that we were living and functioning in based on the ability to read different texts and come in contact with information. And I think that's something we take for granted today. Um, and there's still quite a bit of us who don't know how to read and write too. I went to junior high school with a young black male who didn't know how to read and he was just pushed through school. So um, it's still happening today. So I just think that's something we should really um, think about. And, 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 and that's very important for us. Um, the other clip about the grandson of the black race car driver. Um, wow. That just, that kind of hit me too. Um, it just showed how much determination that black people have um, as far as when they have something that they love to do and they're good at what they do. I mean, when he, when he had to help him get into the race car and the guy drove like 500 miles, even though he had a bad medical condition, man, I mean, John Henryism, but it was something he loved to do and he was able to, and he wanted to do it, but um, it just was deeply touching. And then at the end of all of that, he couldn't afford to continue, you know, I guess paying to facilitate his race car career and, was basically treated like a nigger. You know, nobody would support him or give him any sort of um, backing like they did the white race car drivers, and I found that to be really sad, but that seems to be an everyday thing in this system of white supremacy, and it will be until we replace it with justice. Um, the clip about the about uh, French, the French uh, race situation in French hip-hop I found to be fascinating. They had a, a nice documentary on Viceland about the same thing, and um, wow, France is extremely racist. My wife got to visit there once in her teen years on a, on a trip, to, and she went to Paris. And one of the black, uh, young black females with her was called a monkey by a white woman um, in a bathroom, um, and she almost caused an international incident at that time. But ultimately, um, yeah, they're extremely racist. Um, I was, it was interesting that they, they take to the movie The Warriors. I found that very fascinating. Um, I actually own that movie, and... It's weird because New York City was actually a lot like that it, back in the days where the different boroughs uh, did not get along, and it's something that I experienced. I think it's dissipated a lot more now, but back in the days, that definitely was the way it was. So it was interesting that they took to that particular movie. And um, the clip about the black female killed in the sheriff's house, um, man, I think I'm, I'm, I, I believe he murdered her, and they're covering it up. Um, I don't believe anything law enforcement says when it comes to the death of black people, and they, especially when they use the term thorough investigation. Police are liars. I've, I've spent too much time on this planet in New York City, of all things, places, and New York City is one of the most racist, lying police departments in the country. So, no, I don't believe them. Um, I think maybe they had an argument or something of that sort. He probably killed her and then set it up, and now all of the most powerful whites are surrounding him and protecting him. And then um, lastly, the black male Muslim that you were talking about, that was found hanged from the tree. Um, I believe he was murdered as well. I don't believe anyone who wants to commit suicide is going to climb 50 feet into a tree to tie a noose to hang themselves. If they were really going to commit suicide, they would just hang. They would hang the noose just off far enough off the ground that they could not. Their feet could not touch the ground. So that makes no sense to me. That's something that white people would do. They would throw ropes high up in the tree and lynch lynch our people. So ultimately, um, I believe he was murdered, and I think there's a cover up there too. I mean, like how many months you said it took? Was it two months for them to even for it to become news? And I wonder how long he was left up there before he was even discovered, um, because there's many times where black bodies are just left in places for extended periods of time and decaying, and no one's paying attention to them. This is, happens all the time. So, I, I mean, everything about that situation is very, very um, 
uh, disconcerting, and I hope that there's some clarity that's brought to the to the young man's family. And I'm thank you for taking my call, and I'll meet my line. And thanks, and thanks once again, guys, for this program. You're doing an, an exemplary job, and the ancestors are smiling all over you. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, I'll just start off by saying uh, I don't know if it was said, but uh, there has been a movie on the uh, stock car driver uh, came on you know, probably over 20 years ago. Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor play, played him in a movie that you probably can see on YouTube if you're interested. Uh, I think uh, Mr. Pryor did a pretty good job uh, of that movie, in that movie. Uh, Barry Jenkins, uh, as uh, some people know, the director of the uh, Academy Award-winning movie. Uh, I actually coached him in high school. <laughs> I actually coached him in high school. Uh, I was just reminded of it. You know, I've, I've coached so many uh, people's children since 1981, actually. He, he didn't even come around until uh, the late 1990s. Uh, but uh, I do remember him. Uh, uh, he, uh, he was a captain on the team. And, uh, you know, pretty good football player, not the best, but pretty good football player. Uh, he decided instead of uh, uh, accepting an athletic scholarship, he uh, had like a 4.9 grade point average and uh, went to Florida State uh, using his brain. And uh, as we know, you know, primarily what he's doing today. Uh, matter of fact, speaking of, speaking about that, uh, I was asked by a uh, – a child uh, a couple of days ago uh, at the high school that I work at, uh, and this this guy is one of, one of our better football players. Uh, he asked me uh, on uh, what he should he decide on. He has a scholarship at this uh, particular uh, uh, smaller university, uh, but it's, it's predominantly a lot of white people. He was aware of and 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 concerned about. Uh, how he would relate in the environment, and uh, he also has a uh, chance to uh, have a scholarship at uh, a local uh, college down here at Florida International University, and where he also has a high grade point average. This is the same non-white uh, black child that I mentioned that he was kind of like being ridiculed, which identifies anti-blackness for how heavily melanated he is. And uh, if you see him. That that would be the person that would be a male model of the person that Dr. Welsing is talking about when she said to put that that needs to be on the wall of everybody's every non-white black person's house. It'd be a picture of this this young person, a uh, 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 very muscular, masculine-looking non-white black male, uh, 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 heavily melanated. Uh, but anyway, I, I told him go for go for your brain, go for the the one where you're using your brain for the most part. <laughs> and uh, uh, moving on, uh, yeah, also the area where Barry grew up at, Liberty Square, which is called Pork and Beans, uh, my father grew up in the area. He, matter of fact, my father was the first group of children to grow up in that area. That, that area is known as the first, quote-unquote, government housing projects in the southern part of the northwestern hemisphere, which is called the United States. Uh, spent some time at a mentoring program. It's always good to be around young people. 
uh, is actually to me is like a healthy, actually to be be around young people to exchange views. I did it all day to day, and uh, that's uh, that's it. That's all I have to say uh, on uh, the week as far as racism, white supremacy is concerned. Thank you. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, yes, sir, to the rest of the callers. So I've recently seen the movie Get Out, and I actually found it pretty, it was amazing, actually, just based on film, but I actually learned a lot your volume dropped out your volume dropped out uh if you want to start uh just start over because we lost we lost you very early on uh mark can you hear me now yes you're coming in okay right now sir okay yeah so i was just saying that um the movie get out is actually being it's actually pretty astonishing and it's like there's a lot of there's a lot of symbolism and metaphors in it and it actually really woke me up to like what's going on around the world and I actually know what Jordan Jordan Peele has been thinking what he actually thinks about what's going on and it's just pretty it's just amazing and just based on social media I saw that there are a lot of white people that were rallying God about this they were they just they weren't happy about this movie. Basically. They just they thought it was white racism or reverse racism, things like that. Things that just didn't make sense to me, at least. But I just sat there and I was like, "Wow, never heard of these terms, but I guess they're being used." So yeah, but um, yeah, let's get out. It, it was a pretty, it's a pretty good movie. I actually recommend it. It's a pretty good movie. Um, and just about the audios, just the. French expression black black buff. I was actually confused about it at first because I thought when it said buff, they meant butter. But that I looked it up and it actually means it's just a non derogatory term that refers to like French children or immigrants from northern Africa. And that's where it really got me. And I was like, oh, that's what it means. And yeah, it's just I I realized that I learned a lot from certain things and it's just. Yeah, just, yeah, everything's interesting. But, yeah, that's all I wanted to share. Thank you for taking my call. Might be interesting if you write down a few of your observations about uh, Get Out, pick out some of the specific things that you thought, you know, really highlighted accurately, racism or other things that you thought were important. Write them down. Might be good practice. Okay. I can do that. Feel free to share. We can read it on the program. Okay. Always grand to hear from our young scholar in the uh, Bay Area. Observations on school and racism in general. Entertainment this week. Um, Other folks that we have not heard from, lines should be open. Uh, Feel free. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to all the callers. Greetings to everybody. I got uh, two eight one two in Virginia. Um, a couple of things. Uh, uh, 
uh, I actually I wrote down my notes, but then I actually start from uh, today. Um, I coach a youth basketball team, and we were sitting at the table, me, a non-white black female, and a, a Hispanic male, who I do not believe who classifies himself as a white Hispanic, um, but non-white man. We're sitting at the table, and the woman mentioned that her husband, she gets nervous um, when her husband uh, gets busy at his job. And I was like, why is that? She was like, well, he works for this company. They, they, they build, uh, get back on um, and they build nuclear missiles. And um, she said, you know, when they get busy, they get a little worried. She gets worried. And um, she, said, she looked at me and said, uh, who do you think that we're going to, she said, do you think we're going to go fight? And I was like, yeah, of course we're going to go fight somebody. But, uh, you know, Mr. Trump in office, and she said, who are we going to go fight? And I said, oh, we're going to go fight some non-white people. And they both just kind of looked at me. And she says, and I've had a conversation with this woman before very briefly, um, but she's a little bit less confused. And she was like, yeah, you're probably right about that. And the guy said, the Hispanic, I said, why would you say that? I said, well, who do we normally fight? I said, we fight in Afghanistan. Um, and I said, we. And I said, I, and I said, I had to say, I'm not represented in that we uh, because the United States is a concept. Um, because, you know, nobody's practicing justice. And he's like, oh, that kind of makes sense. So constructive conversation um, all around. And just to kind of share some ideas, it's always helpful. And you never know when the brain of uh, people starts uh, clicking when you just mention things. Um, <clears throat> a couple of things about the clips. Um, I'm learning so much from Gus. I, I honestly feel that the cast has taught me more about um, – just uh, history and life in general than, you know, the four years that I, the years I wasted in college because um, I wasn't really paying attention. But um, when they were talking about the hockey clip and they used the word, they used the words broke the color barrier, I just simply wrote down, if, these, if this term was used, would it even be aired? White people decided to let him play, period. And if we actually use that and if people actually use that kind of verbiage in any sport, whether it was hockey, basketball, track, uh, football, golf, uh, lacrosse, anything of that nature, because sometimes I think it's not white people and black people, um, um, pride comes into it. But I think the climate, as Mr. Fuller talks about, is extremely important. And if these things were not looked at accomplishments, but if it was just looked at racists allowing us to do things, I think we would even have a different aspect on how we perceive these quote-unquote accomplishments, and also whether or not we want to continue to participate in them. I also want to thank the uh, firefighter for mentioning using your brain. Uh, We were talking about that as my children were getting their haircuts today um, and not focusing so much on ball games and and using your brain and trying to do something instructive. Um, I was at a grocery store, and uh, Viola Davis, um, bigger was on the cover of People magazine, and it had a, it had her smiling, and it said, from poverty to Oscars. Found that very, very interesting. Um, also heard the word race relations. Um, the love to ask people what that means. It always gives the connotation that black people are having an incorrect relationship with somebody when we're victims, and we have nothing to do with the terrorism. Um, and, and those words are constantly, constantly used all the time as if this is some sort of relationship, as Gus says, where people are just not getting along, that is inaccurate. 
Um, and then the last thing, in reference to, I agreed with Roz, in reference to the hearing the story about the older uh, victims um, that were in, the, in their hundreds, and I remember Dr. Wesley, rest in peace, would always talk about, you know, that black people could learn to read on a dirt floor in a system of racism, then if we focus and change our behavior, we can solve this problem. And uh, that's all I got. And I'm going to hand Other folks, we have. Um, yes, sir. We can hear you. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, the host, uh, the callers, and the listeners. Um, so I just uh, wanted to call to, uh, I, I guess, give give a little bit of my thoughts on, uh, I guess, this week and racism in general. Um. Facebook um, and other social media uh, networking sites, I think we need to use those to its fullest potential. Uh, For example, I haven't used mine to its fullest potential, but, okay, on Facebook I have uh, friends or connections with people in many different parts of the world. So like in Brazil, um, I sent that uh, video of black women in Brazil that – one of the broadcasts, I sent that to uh, a good 50 people in Brazil just from my friends list. I don't know them, but I communicate with them. Um, and they even, they talk in, in Portuguese. And I use the Google, you know, a, a Google Translate app to figure out what they're talking about. And then I I uh, do a bad job translating whatever I'm saying back to them. And, you know, they laugh, but, um, but they, they still understand. Uh, I think anyway, what I'm saying. And so um, I sent that information. One of the uh, people requested that um, it it would be really nice if they could get uh, that particular program, the subtitles in Portuguese. I'd imagine that'd be very difficult, but I mean, I I just wanted to relay the message anyway. And, um, and if, I don't know if you could do subtitles in different languages, uh, wherever our people are speaking the, you know, whatever majority languages our people are speaking, it may be helpful. Um, I'm trying to get the information out uh, to, you know, as, as broad, broadly as I can. And I would just say for the people who who are up to it, you know, that Facebook allows you to add um, 5,000 connections or 5,000 friends. And, I mean, use it. You don't have to know the people. Just add a bunch of black people all over the world. It's really cool that you can do it. You know, nowadays you can use YouTube to do a lot of things, too. Uh, you know, just I would just say use the, these tools to, to its fullest potential. Like I said, I'm Google translating stuff. You know, so you, our limits are, are less now. So we need to use that. We can solve this problem in a very short period of time if we actually chose to. Um, I, I think that we're not trying hard enough. I know that we're trying. I'm not trying to be insulting, but just as a people, uh, we, we we have to not be trying hard enough for it to be soft. Um, yeah, that's that's mainly what I wanted to say. Uh, thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Uh, 
other folks uh, that we have not heard from. Uh, we have one hour left. Uh, so this is Vinny, the folks. Happy who, yes, sir. Good evening, guys. Good evening to all the callers on Thomas in New York. Um, yeah, I just wanted to make a few um, observations. The, the lynching, I remember a few years ago, Gus, um, I know you remember. I believe it was in um, Texas, but I could be wrong. I know it was in the, one of the southern states. And um, there was a black man out at the rodeo with his white girlfriend. And apparently they bumped into her ex. And some words were exchanged. And then um, he dropped her off and ended up being hung in his garage. That was also, I think, um, they tried to write that off as a suicide, um, act like he didn't just have contact with these white boys who were threatening him. And if he didn't get hung in his garage, he got hung in her garage after dropping her off. You remember that, Gus? Uh, if my memory is correct, I think that's Cody Ingham. Uh, I think that was 2013. And if you want to be real specific, that was the same weekend as the verdict was announced in the murder trial of Trayvon Martin in July of 2013, yes. the same weekend. That was Cody Ingham. And if you want to be real specific, one week after that verdict, Dr. Welsing was on the program, and I read about that yes. case specifically, and she commented. Yes, she did. That's why I remember it. So, yeah, I believe these things might happen every day, and we just don't know. Um, and um, just the power, like you said, the power of them to be able to... Um, control the story, control the narrative. It's one of the biggest um, things they have to their, uh, at their disposal um, to be able to um, able to decide what, what's news and what's not news um, and how they could cover it. Just very powerful. Um, the, uh, I believe his first name is Kareem. I could be wrong, but Browder, the brother who hopped the train and... Um, was accused of having a stolen book bag and ended up doing three years in Rikers. His story um, is out now. I know if you have Verizon, it's already out. Um, it comes on um, my cable tomorrow, so I'm looking forward to watching it. I believe Spike Lee and Jay-Z uh, put up the money for the production and they, they did the direction of this. And I just think that that's um, one of those stories that we can't um, just pass up because that could happen to any one of us. Um, it was all about money. Couldn't afford to get out of jail, you know, ended up spending three years in there. College student, um, terrible. Um, I've been catching up on the electable Negro and um, not to veer off, but um, I, I'm kind of um, confused <laughs> as to where I'm at because um, it seems like a lot of this is the author's um, interpretation of the almost like a metaphysical breakdown of, of um, Frederick Douglass's readings to pretty much say that Frederick Douglass was um, being um, molested or, or raped by white men. And, and I, I just didn't see the, the hard evidence to prove it. It just seemed like it was his theory, and I just wanted to know if he felt the same way. And um, I'll my line for now. Thank you. Fascinating. I think we do have some folks here who can uh, give their opinion uh, on Delectable Negro. Uh, we've been keeping up with the book, uh, or even maybe some people who don't normally get to participate in the book club who've kept up if they want to give a thought on 
the uh, speculation about the sexual molestation of Frederick Douglass or sexual violation of Frederick Douglass while he was being enslaved. Uh, oh, one more thing. Um, yes, sir. Did you think that the, the, the whole exchange with the awards, which I really wish we could get to the point where we don't show up at white people award shows trying to get white validation for projects that we put together as black people, like that's the holy grail of, uh, not the metaphor, I'm sorry, like that's, that's, that's what's going to count is these white people like your movie or your video or your music, you know. Either way, did you think that that was um, done intentionally, uh, how the black man's movie, um, you know, they read the, you know, the thing wrong, and then all of a sudden they try to blame it on, um, you know, these two old white stars, and um, then, then, they, then they try to blame it on Price Waterhouse Coopers, who I know, I worked at Deloitte for years, Price Waterhouse and Deloitte, they don't make mistakes. <laughs> it's impossible, you know, everything just triple checked. So I just thought it was racist, and I just want to know if you thought the same way in the other listeners. Mm, other folks can give their commentary as we roll. Uh, just my quick thought on that. Um, I have never watched an Oscars ceremony in my life, uh, and I don't anticipate that I will ever watch one. Um, we, a 18-year-old black child was lynched. On my list of priorities, uh, the awards, any of the awards ceremonies is way, 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 way lower than, you know, a thousand other things that are happening in life. Uh, I did think that it was uh, predictably tacky that the first time a, I think it was either an all-black cast or predominantly black cast wins uh, the Oscar for Best Film is the time that they botch it. Uh, and give it to this film that a lot of white people loved, and then have to usher them off the shaved, uh, stage to give the award to the Negras uh, that won. I did think there was something especially tacky, uh, curiously tacky uh, about that whole arrangement. But again, you know, priorities being what they are, that is, you know, we can get to that later. <laughs> um, other folks who uh, we have not heard from, if you want to respond to either of Thomas's questions or you have your own commentary, feel free. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Hey, guys. Hey, everybody. This is uh, Cam from Milwaukee. I'm a first-time caller. I've uh, been really enjoying the body of work you've been doing thus far. I've been into it, like, for the past three months, um, which is pretty a little disappointing for me because it's, like, the eighth anniversary, so I felt like I uh, missed so much. Um, but before I get into my commentary, I wanted to um, – ask you if you ever um if you ever did a piece of work on the term biracial um as far as like when is it used why is it used um uh, because the term really confuses me uh we have discussed uh that term i know i have uh on the program before uh i think mr fuller i think we've even discussed it with him um that one in interracial uh but it's the same the same reasoning uh that i use uh and mr fuller goes over this in depth in the word guide about um it's a, the only reason to belong to a race is to practice racism there's only one race the white race uh if you are a non-white person not white 
you do not belong to a race. Uh, I know that is a, a concept that a lot of people, you know, do not accept or what have you and think that they do belong to a race, even if they are not white. Uh, but that is, in my view, it is very, very logical. Uh, but based on that, terms like interracial and biracial, uh, in my view, they just promote uh, confusion. Uh, it suggests that you can belong to multiple races. It suggests that there are races. Uh, it suggests that all of these are real categories, as though you have uh, a quote-unquote real authentic white person, and then you have quote-unquote real authentic black people and real authentic how many other races they want to name, that all of these really exist. And so then if you get a 100% real white person and a 100% real black person now you have a biracial person uh they even have you know more categories coming try really they'll just keep cranking them out and all of it is just promoting confusion uh the thing that is most important racist man racist woman uh they make up these categories as they go who's going to be what they can change them whatever they want to and uh just the term biracial uh that you mentioned specifically i have encouraged folks not to use it if i do use it you will generally hear or see me put it in quotes um, the term biracial, just that it is used like when we had uh, the folks on the program with the racist mothers back in December, people heard that program. I'll stop there. Hopefully that answers your question. Yes, I think we have everything that I've just pointed out. I think we have touched on that previously on the cows over the past eight years. Yeah, OK. I was wondering about that because I've heard the term being I don't like using the word either, um, but I've heard the term used, um, you know, in the news lately. And, and it seems like. Um, I think Sage still used the word maybe a week or two ago. Um, I've heard other people use it, but she uh, kind of was the reason why I asked the question in the first place. Um, because I don't know the def I didn't know the definition at the time, uh, but what the ultimate result seems to be, um, it's like a word prompt to either confuse or um, disparage other black people. And that's what usually happens. These people that, use the word biracial, they always end up uh, promoting this um, idea that black people need to do this or they need to start doing this. They need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And this is typically the result of anybody I see using this word. So I kind of I feel like it's this, um, it's almost like a white pass, like a white pass that um, black people are given um, in exchange for their service for, um, you know, disparaging black people and it expires in 24 hours or something. So that's something I observed there. I think that was a metaphor. Oh, was that a metaphor? I'm sorry. <laughs> for First time being on this thing. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, it just, like I said, it just seems like it, um, it, it, it all, like you said, it always used the, um, to cause confusion. That's all I want to say. For sure. Good. Always grand to hear first time callers. I just to try to, to mention that because the metaphors that is important. I think it's very uh, important as, as we do counter races work, as you mentioned, paying attention to terms, uh, the words that people use are very important. And a lot of times metaphors, Betsy Devos, Betsy Devos, they, right. they will use those metaphors to spread confusion. Yes. Robin, Wisconsin, we can hear you, sir. Greetings. Uh, shout out to the other Milwaukee caller. Uh, it's very encouraging. Um, so, man, this uh, week has been uh, very tough. Um, I've uh, been 
not feeling very well. Um, still dealing with the injury, and um, it has not. Um, the injury has not been allowing me to uh, participate in uh, some of the usual programs that I'm involved in, and um, I've been laying down um, a lot more. Um, although um, I'm looking better um, in physical appearance, like my face and my head was really swollen. Um, people have been seeing me and asking me, like, man, did you lose weight? And um, so even though I'm looking better, um, what I've been experiencing, like with my spine, um, shoulder, face, and head area, man, it's like it's been just too much. And um, unfortunately, um, it's been too much to the point where um, I have to withdraw from my courses um, at this point. Um because I have to um, give my body time to heal. Um, you know, I'm limping, so the, you know, limping around the college um, is just too much right now at this point. Um, and I think the hardest thing about it is um, just not being able to do the things that I used to do, noticing that. So <clears throat> I'm at the college, and um, unfortunately we we had just um, received our financial aid refund, and um, so I guess black people going down there to get the money and leaving their courses is big business and um, retarded victim of racism. I'm slow. I don't know nothing about this little scam that's going on. So while I'm there with my shoulder brace and my neck brace on, I'm talking to this lady. And um, she's treating me like I'm trying to run the hustle. Um, so she, I'm um, telling her I need to withdraw from my courses and, you know, explain it to her. And then she's going to say, well, you can't write. It's a black female that I'm talking to. Um, she's going to say, well, you can't write. And, uh, you know, I almost lost my grits, man, like really, like totally lost it. Um, I know that's a metaphor. I probably going to use a couple of them, but I'm uh, a little emotional right now. Um, so she said that to me. And um, now I have to explain what I'm going through on a daily basis, man, about the blood that drains out of my face for maybe an hour or two hours straight, um, how my fingers and toes be numb, how, man, my whole facial structure and my head moves, man, how I basically twist my body and my head back into shape. So now after I tell her that, then magically this appeal form appears, and she says, well, this is an appeal form that you can submit um, when you submit your withdrawal form. And with the proper documentation from your physician, then you could be accommodated. Now, before I went into explaining all of that, I told her that I had a doctor's appointment that afternoon to get proper documentation for my injury. 
you would think at that point she would have told me about the appeal form and all of that. And, um, yeah, so um, that's where I'm at. Um, and the hardest part about it is um, under this system, um, the black male um, doesn't get the room to hurt. Man, very sorry to uh, hear that, Rob. Like, uh, man, I know that health. I mean, when you are in pain uh, on a daily basis, I mean, wow, you talk about something that really erodes your quality of life uh, and just makes it. And I mean, you had been telling us about how well you had been doing at school and 4.0, I think, right? Right at 4.0. And then to have all this happen, man, I just. Uh, I'm sorry to hear it. I uh, hope you're able to get your health back uh, immediately. I know that's just, man, I can't even imagine having to deal with that on a, on a daily basis. Um, and, and the empathy, as you stated, I know Dr. Curry talks about that on a regular basis, just the, the general uh, lack of empathy that this system of white supremacy uh, demands. Everybody uh, not empathize with black people. Um, that's just unfortunate but that's all areas of people activity about what all of us can expect uh other folks that was that you uh mr Steele? yeah can i be heard yes sir awesome um i am in uh, southern california at the moment and i'm I, i guess i have a question um but before I get to my question, I, I just want to say to the uh, previous caller, um, please uh, resist the urge to um, deal with your chronic pain with uh, any sort of uh, opiates that may be offered to you um, by uh, doctors during the um, rehabilitation process if your injuries are uh, due um uh, require some sort of pain management uh, program. Um, seek any sort of alternatives to those opiates because um, I've observed too consistently that uh, they are oftentimes the um, uh, the start of uh, extremely uh, damaging habits that um, are hard to break. So um, I've noticed this more in of suspected white supremacists uh, than victims of racism recently. But um, I, I do know that um, uh, it is a problem uh, nonetheless. Um, but on to my question, and it also um, pertains to health, and in this case um, it's uh, with mental health. Uh, earlier uh, this week I have observed one of my uh, associate um, or a I guess somebody that I've been associated with uh, in Chicago uh, making posts that appeared to be uh, suicidal. Um, uh, They were making a number of posts on Facebook and really um, advertising their, um, their, I guess, uh, decision to take their own life or their impending um, mortality. Either way, it was um, um, extremely disturbing. 
And in reaction to this, I kind of crowdsourced, uh, um, you know, responses initially um, to see what I should do about these posts. I didn't really identify the person. Um, I think they even identified themselves later uh, in that post. But eventually I uh, coordinated a couple of other associates of mine to meet up with this uh, um, uh, associate that um, who is a victim of racism, by the way, uh, he, man, I, I coordinated some people to meet up with him and I thought everything was okay. Um, because we were all, uh, together. Um, I was, uh, patched in through speakerphone and, uh, they were getting, um, some coffee, uh, with, uh, um, my uh, associate and, um, this guy, um, he seemed like he, everything was okay. And uh, fast forward a few days later, and he's making um, more of these comments. And I, I got around to, you know, asking him what the problem is. And he keeps on talking about um, some crimes or, you know, grievous harm that has been done against him that nobody wants to um, remedy um, with legal means. And he's talking about taking extra legal means to um, satisfy himself. And he's saying that these people who done this were enemies that were from 10 years ago. And he can't seem to name who these enemies are and, you know, what transgressions transpired. You know, the story always shifts. And eventually it became apparent to me that this person may be uh, a schizophrenic and or uh, maybe um, deeply delusional and I do recall um, seeing moments of this uh, when I uh, knew him uh, I guess personally or when we were associated with together um, in Chicago and I guess you know he's still making these comments and they're getting more I, I, cryptic. I, he keeps on mentioning Trump Tower, and you know, he mentioned to me that he would, you know, do something at Trump Tower or uh, kill himself there or whatever. And I'm, you know, I'm beside myself. I don't know what to do. Part of me feels some sense of duty to get him, um, uh, get him uh, uh, help by authorities, and I know that he's told me that they don't provide the help that he needs. He needs legal assistance. And I asked him, you know, I have gone to a lawyer and he said that no lawyer will take his case or whatever. And, you know, I don't believe there's a case because he's not saying anything specific about anything. And I'm just, again, I'm beside myself. I don't know what to do in this situation. I feel like he may harm himself or other people, or, you know, is he just talking? Um, is he just rambling on Facebook? Is this just a cry for help and attention? Um, you know, because when he does get attention, it, it seems to, it doesn't seem to be uh, so immediately, um, such like an immediate uh, um, danger that he's going to harm anybody when he's being engaged with. But when he's just left alone, it just seems like he's going to, harm somebody or himself or I don't know yeah I'm, I'm just very nervous by what he's posting and I don't want to call police
Mm. You know, that's something that I, it's something that makes me very nervous. Because he's up there, he's uh, mid-40s, and he's kind of tall, and he's black. So all of this makes me very nervous. I don't know um, I'm not really, at least in this situation, I don't know that there's a whole lot that you can do, being that you are in very far from him. I mean, California and Illinois are not remotely close. Um, I don't know what legal authority uh, you would have. I mean, even calling the I mean, that could be an adventure in and of itself uh, to call the police from California on someone that you're not legal guardian uh, for and saying that you think this person needs help. That could, you know, be an ordeal in and of itself. Um, I don't know how much there is that you can do. Uh, it sounds like, you know, you made a great effort uh, to organize resources and see if you could get people to recognize, you know, what was happening and that you all should be concerned and maybe try to do something. Uh, but I just, I don't know how much you can do other than continuing to do what you've been doing to reach out, talk to other people. Uh, if there are folks who are uh, closer to him geographically. Uh, who can check in where they can, you know, actually see him uh, and talk to him and what have you and kind of see what's going on and get a better gauge uh, of what he's like in person, uh, what he sounds like, what he looks like. Uh, that might be helpful, but I don't I don't really know that there is a whole lot you can do uh, as someone who's not a legal guardian and being not really geographically close to him either. I don't I don't know that there's much more that you can do other than what you have done. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I, I don't know, but um, I, maybe he's talking about the system of white supremacy and he doesn't know it, or this is something that's really... I, I told him to leave Chicago. It doesn't seem like a very good place for non-white uh, people, especially those who are classified as black. But, you know, beyond that, I don't know. And it seems like this is something that happens with us and we don't take it seriously or we don't seem to address it because there seems to be a number of non-white people that have mental disorders that are walking around, especially in that city of Chicago. And it just seems to be a frequent problem that goes unaddressed. And I don't know, it's, it's heartbreaking to see. I, this is, and it's really disturbing. Absolutely. I guess I'll mute my line. Absolutely. Worldwide problem. Uh, I will give out the number again if folks have uh, commentary that they would like to share. We have roughly 30 minutes left in the broadcast. 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Please do not wait till the last minute. Uh, do we, anybody that we have missed, anybody who has a hand up that we have not heard from at all, uh, have commentary that they wanted to share? We got everybody. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, yes, thank you very much, Gus. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, there was a, a few parts of the audio segment that interest me. Uh, the first was, I think, the I think that was a, a black male used a metaphor. Um, uh, it didn't really, I guess, it didn't really make sense about you know when your your child coming into the world with his fist bald and you know as old as you get, you have to open your hands up. Like I really understand now like why i mean i understood before but 
when it comes to uh, making yourself clear and uh, speaking words directly, you know, and being uh, concise with what you're saying. Like, I, would, I really wouldn't understand what that particular one meant. And uh, there, there was another audio segment or part of the audio segment where the, I think it was the guy, the, D, the Dietrich High School, I think, or middle school, where I think this was the judge. He was saying something about, uh, I guess, it wasn't a, a racist crime or something. But in the report, they were saying he was getting uh, abused, um, pretty much uh, being a victim of racism. So it's like so many contradictions that they put in these uh, reports. And it goes to show you that they pretty much can say what constitutes is racism to them and what isn't. And uh, the bulk of us who don't really understand it will just become more intensely confused. And I think it was a, another segment where uh, I don't I don't think it was I don't because I think it was just one segment about a high school. I have to think about it again. But um, other than that, I didn't really get to hear the part on the lynching. I think was that in Seattle? Is that where it happened? Basically, suburbs right outside of Seattle. Wow, because. Uh, just like I heard Thomas say, I know these things are pretty much happening all over the place, uh, you know, in many different areas. And it, I'm quite sure it's going uh, underreported. And as far as the, uh, I think someone mentioned the, I guess the, uh, the Oscars fiasco, um, I found that very suspicious just to briefly comment on that. Like, you know, it's possible that they could have already had that premeditated and just to get um, white people pretty much upset and uh, just to practice more racism, you know, business as usual. So uh, other than that, that's pretty much all I have to contribute. And uh, thanks for allowing me to share. For sure. For sure. (laughs) Uh, Other folks, anybody else that we uh, have missed completely uh, who has a hand up that we have not heard from at all. Anybody else? We got everyone. Spectacular. I'll keep an eye out just in case we have any uh, stragglers. Uh, Any of the other folks that are with us, if you had other comments you wanted to get in, uh, certainly we had questions on the table. Thomas asked about the delectable Negro and the author's speculation about Frederick Douglass being uh, sexually uh, abused. Uh, And I think we had some other questions on the table uh, as well from uh, listeners. Uh, Or if you just had other comments that you wanted to share. Any other commentary folks wanted to get in? Well, can I say something um, in regards to uh, what Ken Still said? And um, I see it every night, mental illness in our community, terrible. Um, the other night I'm at the hospital, and um, I witnessed a little white girl, i say probably 14, she smacked her mother. And um, the mother actually tried to restrain her. Um, the, the little girl kept saying she wanted to die, she wanted to kill herself. So I went right into procedures and protocols. I went and got security. I witnessed an assault. 
I went and um, got noticed the psych ward. Someone saying they want to kill themselves. They went and um, against the mother's wishes. She was very angry at me for doing that. Um, but it was very happy to see her. This angry white woman, and there was nothing she could do about it. Um, they took her daughter and restrained her and um, put her in the psych ward. Um, and um, police came over and even wanted to make a report about the assault. And just to see this white woman going through all something that I see black people go through every day is just, um, you know, beautiful. And um, um, and I apologize, Gus, because you know, you're absolutely right. On a week where a brother gets lynched, uh, for me to bring up something in regards to entertainment that's so minuscule uh, is definitely um, distasteful, I would say. And I'll, I'll try not to do that again. Um, the last thing I wanted to say was... Um, Regarding the consumption, and I brought this up on a, the last time I participated in a, a book study session, um, in the hospital there's a whole wall of heroes. Um, you see, um, I, I know quite a few of them. Um, and this is the only place where a black man, um, especially one who's a criminal or gangster, um, regardless of what you do, you're a hero as long as you're donating organs to white people. Uh, they put you right on this wall next to cops and everything else. Um, so I just thought that was very interesting because some people on this wall I know are not heroes, <laughs> and um, but yet they're um, giving that salute. I mean, my mom. Wow. Uh, while there was a listener who wrote in uh, commentary that he wanted to share. He said he's not able to call in live, but I also thought it was important. KUOW, that's the local uh, Seattle public radio. They were one of the first outlets that reported on uh, Ben Kida. Uh, that's the black male 18 year old who was uh, found hanging in January. Just became big news now, two months later. But <clears throat> when they titled the article, it says, uh, Muslim teen found hanging uh, family seeks answers, something close to that. But Muslim teen, when I posted it, I changed the wording to black Muslim teen. I thought that was very important. They do mention in the article uh, that he's uh, that this was a black male. They have a photograph so you can see him highly melanated. Uh, but just I mean, why are we burying the lead? If this is a case where there is speculation that this might have been uh, some sort of racist white terrorist attack, then why wouldn't we include the racial information in the subject? Uh, to me, it almost is suggesting that we would prefer to deflect and suggest that this might be some sort of religious hate crime as opposed to this is an act of racism, white supremacy, uh, where this is a lynching of a black male again. Uh, that's what it suggested to me, them leaving out uh, black from the title of the article at KUOW. Now, the person uh, wrote in, they wanted to share. Uh, I've been wanting to call in to share an observation that happened when I was a kid. I haven't been able to call in because I've been busy lately. I haven't uh, called in since last year. I remember you had two ladies on the program that have white mothers and black fathers. It made me want to share my observation. When I was 10 years old, I had a best friend. He was quote unquote mixed. We talked about this before saying so you put this in there with quote unquote biracial and the rest of it. Uh, so his mother, uh, so this, this non-white person has a white mother and a non-white father, black father. Uh, when we got to the fifth grade, 
we started getting into sports. Uh, the non-white person with a white mom. Uh, basketball was the first, and after every game, I'd get a ride from them because I lived right around the corner from them. After every game, my friend's white mom would come up to me and say, you got that Chicken George run, making tons of Chicken George remarks, making fun of me because I ran faster than everyone else. I was 11 years old at the time, so I didn't think too much of it. When we got into track and cross, cross country, she started calling me Toby. She kept with the Chicken George remarks and saying I ran like Toby and Chicken George. She got so comfortable with calling me Toby and Chicken George, her husband and other kids started calling me those names too. I didn't take offense to it because I didn't know what those names meant at the time. Her husband just let her call me those names with no problem. It didn't dawn on me that she was being a racist until the Roots reboot came on. That was last summer. I've seen the original Roots when I was in the 8th grade, but it didn't dawn on me then. I believe uh, this, the cows, has helped me realize things a lot more. Uh, I'm 23 now, and I have more observations I want to share in the future. Things that happened when I was a child back then, I didn't realize racism was being practiced towards me. With this observation, it's 100% true uh, that white women that are married to black males and have families with them can still practice racism. Absolutely. And the primary way that they're doing it is just being there. Uh, other folks have commentary they want to share? Observations? Anything stood out? Yeah, last thing, um, oh, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. I'll go after you. It was very quick. I woke up and I see that now the, the face of anti-Semitism is a black man. Um, I saw it on the paper, I believe, yesterday. And I said how, how you know, how just system, systemic is this that, um, you know, they, they slap a black face after seeing all this degradation done to the, the Jewish people's graves. And um, it also brings home, I mean, who could be more anti-Semitic than the white people known as the Jews? Can I be heard? Can I be heard? Uh, let's see. Heard both of you. Uh, I guess we can get uh, retired firefighter first, then we'll get Roz. Okay. Uh, yes, I, I just wanted to say, uh, being that uh, I heard the the uh, the word Jews, uh, probably some of you all know uh, that there's been quote unquote. Uh, terrorism in uh, Jewish centers in and around uh, this part of the world, right? Uh, also, they have uh, basically arrested a black male, if if anyone didn't know, for at least some of these uh, uh, uh Calls about the you know uh, threatening uh, to to blow up uh, some of these centers. It was it was accused for a black male to have done some of these phone calls. Uh, come to find out, what they what they uh, said behind it was a white female, his former girlfriend, which was a white female. Uh, I thought that was quite interesting. The whole story about uh, his motivation, his motivation from. Uh, for call, calling in and making these so-called threats was actually based on uh, his uh, 
uh, formal relationship with a white female. Yeah, that's it. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yes. First, I wanted to speak to the um, title of the article where they refused to put uh, that he was a black Muslim, a black Muslim young man. Um, I think that's always done, and I and I think it's always done to practice uh, a highly refined form of racism. Whether or not they put it in the article, what's going to have the most, the biggest effect is the title. That's why they put the title in large letters and all of those kinds of things. And to take something as important as that in a climate like this, that's such a, a quote-unquote racially charged climate that we're in ever since Donald Trump took office, ever since Obama took office for that matter. Well, the whole history of this country, but it intensified when Obama took office. But ultimately to negate that fact is a highly refined form of racism, white supremacy, because it's, it's, it's obfuscating the reality of the fact that this young person was killed because they were black. And everything about that story is being reported in a very, very uh, disconcerting manner, like I said earlier. Um, to speak to the, the black male who's allegedly being blamed for these, uh, some of these phone calls to these Jewish synagogues, and now it even more comes out with his relationship with this, um, this white female terrorist himself. Um, I said ever since the shootings, the shootings that came out with the two alleged black males shooting the police officers and all of those things, that black people were going to be made an insurgent group within this country. And as things have progressed, now this has come out, they're again going to use this to make us the face of all things that are terroristic or negative in this country. And um, on the news clip that I saw in my local area, it said that they were trying to pit, see if he was connected to all of the calls, not just some of the calls. So I just found that very, very interesting um, just in regards to uh, the fact that he might end up getting pinned with all of it, even if he didn't do it. And racists have the power to do that. And like someone said earlier, they're controlling the narrative. And as long, I think it was Thomas in New York. And as long as they control the narrative, they can make things look however they would like. Thank you. And I'll mute my line. I wanted to get in also really quick. That segment where they were talking about John Hope Franklin's uh, estate uh, and they had a lot of <clears throat> uh, his items for sale uh, that I played earlier in the sound clips. Um, I, it seems some of the people that were there uh, purchasing items may have been black people, right? So, I mean, that could have been, you know, like some of the, the cows listeners here who wanted to, to get things to, for, to use for counter-racist purposes, you know, to, uh, to read if it's, it's books and materials or just to share for counter-racist purposes. Understand that, but it just had the feel of uh, just predatory behavior, uh, not even just predatory. I think even some of the things that we've talked about with delectable Negro just going in and, and consuming uh, this revered black person's uh, items and property. Uh, maybe that was just me, but that was the feeling that I got from that segment. It, it felt it had a, a very much. Uh, feeling of, of something vulturistic happening. Uh, this person has died and we're just going to come in and literally pick over their items and, oh, book here and, and this and that, and I can go home and, and take this and put it in my, my residence or whatever I want to do with. Um, I don't know. I might have been, <laughs> I might have been incorrectly processing uh, information from the segment. How did other folks feel? If, if people that heard it, did other folks have thoughts on that segment? I completely agree. 
um, I think that that's exactly what happens, especially once white people are given access to either black bodies themselves or to the personal effects of black people. It goes back to taking um, souvenirs at lynchings, whether it's body parts and things of that nature. I see it the exact same way that you do. I completely agree. And um, I wanted to answer Thomas and Neil's question about the delectable Negro, about um, Frederick Douglass. Um, They do discuss... um, him being uh, sexually uh, terrorized in in the book, but what I what I quoted in the show um, when we discussed the, that particular excuse me that particular portion of the reading was that I felt that he was being homosexualized because the writer and the, possibly even some of the editors um, might be homosexual males. I know that the writer himself was homosexual, um, quote unquote homosexual. Um, that he was homosexualizing. Frederick Douglass and not looking at the situation in its proper context. He wasn't looking at it in the context of Frederick Douglass being dominated by a person in a slave master relationship and possibly being forced, not even possibly, and being forced into getting raped and sexually terrorized versus him making a conscious decision in quote unquote, um, with agency quote unquote, and saying, you know, I like men. So in other words, he's putting this on him rather than actually looking at it in the context of him being a rape victim, just like anybody else in the power and an imbalanced power dynamic, who's forced to have sex with someone, no matter what kind of sex it is, because that person is a person in control of your daily reality and life and death for you on a daily basis. Thank you. And I'll meet my line. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Awesome. Um, yeah, this is Ken Steele again. And, um, you know, this week, uh, there was the, uh, joint, uh, the address to the joint, um, congressional, uh, body, uh, by Donald Trump. And, um, there was something that was really interesting that, uh, the president, uh, announced, uh, through his whole speech. I thought it was very interesting how that uh, he used um, non-white black people to illustrate um, what he uh, means by uh, immigrants um, attacking uh, American citizens. And it was very interesting that he also used these um, people as uh, props to announce his program called Voice, which is, I guess, the, um, I I think uh, the acronym stands for uh, the Victims of Immigration um, Violence uh, or Immigration Crime Engagement. It just, even the acronym seems very, uh, it just seems very convoluted. And the thing about this that makes me um, scratch my head is that uh, apparently this organization is uh, charged with the responsibility of publishing all the crimes of immigrants, uh, whether they be illegal or not, um, in the United States. And many people are drawing comparisons between this and what occurred with the Jewish population of Germany in the buildup to the Holocaust. And it's interesting that Nobody seems to be making the um, observation that this already occurs um, already on um, 
Breitbart, there is the Black Crime Watch. Um, they basically focus on all of the crime committed by black people on um, this one website, Breitbart. And then if you turn on the 5 o'clock or the 11 o'clock news of any, uh, any city, you can see a whole litany of crimes um, being committed uh, that are being reported that are being committed by black people. You would think that the only people committing crime in the United States are black people or the primary group of people committing crime in the United States are black people. Um, if you watch the news and nobody seems to be making that observation um, and saying that, Hey, this is already happening. And it just seems to me that many of the complaints that people are making about Donald Trump and his um, expression of uh, his um, uh, white supremacist inclinations are are occurrences that have already um, been taking place and transgressions that have already been happening against um, uh, non-white black, specifically black people here in the United States. And I just thought that was a very interesting observation. And also, did anybody notice that the whole State of the Union speech was just one long um, uh, tribute to uh, white supremacy? It was just, it was even summoning, I, um, I, I guess images of, of white women crying. He even had a white woman crying on national TV in, in public. And I think that imagery was very powerful to non-white people. And, um, and I, I don't know, that was just something that, very, that was very, very striking and um, uh, very scary to me. Um, and I guess I'll leave my line at that point Final 10 minutes. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, just really quick. I think um, what, what uh, the gentleman was just saying, I believe it was a uh, video clip I seen where it was saying that um, women wore white. So I was looking at it wrong. I was like, did this say white women? But it was saying women wore white, like the color white, I guess, to symbolize um women's rights and uh equal pay did you did you see that video clip or did you hear about that gus i did not i'm gonna check now let's see to protest yes the um several women uh several women uh members of congress uh wore white to protest donald trump and white was the color of the suffragette movement so uh Women's suffrage was, uh, was, I guess, symbolized by the color white, something that uh, should be noted. It's also the color of the L.A. Times. They were talking about all this. They said the, uh, this white Hillary Clinton uh, also wore white to most of her campaign events. How about that? Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> oh, they even had a hashtag to go along with this. Women wear white. I didn't even uh, check my Twitter timeline to see uh, see what that's all about. See what, what cool things got posted with that.
<laughs> great. Some people have some great imagery to uh, make it plain what this is all about. And they, and they strategically got it. It's not even like they have a whole lot of uh, black female uh, members in the house, but they got the limited number of black females up front. <laughs> wearing white to to show them oh, off uh, with the standard tackiness. Um, last, you know, black people have been have been showcased for the for throughout this campaign and even into this administration. If you notice, black people have been showcased at very um, pivotal moments um, in this whole administration. Uh, if you remember. The apology to the Jewish community by Donald Trump was given at the African American History Museum, and he uh, began his preamble to uh, the uh, joint uh, congressional address um, with uh, a note that it was the end of uh, Black History Month. So I, I think that's worth noting. Last few minutes uh folks had anything else they needed to get in before we wrap up not gonna be hurt yes sir hey uh, i just want to talk about the small segment uh um heard on the audio about how the french were unconfused about the term black um being used over uh their word for black there were that already was i know here and it just kind of reminded me why i emphasize using the term non-white nowadays uh, as opposed to even other terms like black, brown, um, Chinese. It just, um, I've noticed that there has been an increasing um, confusion um, as far as uh, racial category. And I actually, uh, when, like a week or two ago in this program, somebody used the term uh, racial, racially ambiguous uh, people um, being used to kind of uh, champion the struggle. And I just kind of, uh, I, I've noticed that, and I, I think I just emphasize using non-white more. And, and one question, if you identify as Jew and Muslim, um, if you're, like, filling out an application or something, couldn't you still fill out the um, that you're uh, identified as white? As I understand it, uh, quote-unquote Jew, quote-unquote Muslim, these are not <laughs> racial classifications. Um, we're, we're, if we're talking about a racial classification, that's neither. I mean, I mean, that would be like somebody saying, you know, can you be Christian and white? I mean, you can call yourself Christian and still be classified as white practice, racism, white supremacy. We've seen many uh, examples of that down through the years. And so the same would apply for any other quote unquote religion. You can, you know, many individuals uh, who classify themselves as white and practice white supremacy will say that, yes, I practice the Baha'i faith or I'm Jewish or I'm Christian or I'm Muslim or, you know, making up a new religion that I'm going to call myself. It was my, my man that, uh, Took all the people down to South, uh, South America. Guy, I think he made up his, his own religion. Uh, Jim Jones, yes. I don't even remember what, whatever his practice that he was doing. But, I mean, they'll cook up a whole lot of things. But at the end of the day, it's the religion of white supremacy. So that will be uh, my view. Uh, those are not racial classifications. Uh, and you probably do have tons of uh, race soldiers who will, you know, say that I'm Muslim or Jewish or whatever the day. And this is a white person practicing racism. Yeah, and I'll try to get it in real quick. Um, 
because I've had these conversations where um, this the Muslim and Jew is being used to kind of like uh, more confuse the racial classifications as if Jew and Muslim is a racial classification. Uh, someone, you know, tried to ask me, you know, how come, quote unquote, blacks can't get it together, but Jews and Muslims can. And I'm like, well, I personally, I can't fill out that I'm white on an application or whatever. But, you know, just simple things like that. Um, so I, I've even been um, told to my face that um, white people aren't the problem. Um, the Jews are the problem or the Muslims are the problem. And I'm like, that kind of really doesn't make any sense because um, a Jew or a Muslim could still be white. So what are you really telling me? But, yeah, that's all I wanted to say. I'll meet my line. For sure, for sure. Uh, any last comments we get in, if you can do it in two minutes. Everyone satisfied? No final comment? That's fine, too. The most powerful uh, Jews and Muslims all white. <laughs> it doesn't matter how you cut it. Um, you got the Shriners, you got all, you know, all kinds of Jewish, you know. So, I mean, the most powerful ones are white, and that's, you know it as well. Uh, it is a religion. It is, um, when it comes down to the context of um, racial classification, uh, I think it's always important to point out that the people that run those religions are white. Amen. <laughs> Nobody has uh, any. Can I be heard? Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, real quick. I've also observed that uh, in these uh, past few months, um, many of uh, my associates who are um, who describe themselves as Jewish uh, and are of European descent, um, they seem to be many of them seem to be playing dumb um, with respect to what can be plainly observed uh, that is going on. And they also 30 seconds playing really dumb as to uh, some of the blatant disrespect that's going on by Donald Trump, which leads me to believe that uh, some of these people are not um, devoted to um, their Jewish identity, but rather their devoted to an identity that aligns with uh, white supremacy. So um, I don't know. That's just something that I've observed from my friend or from my associates of uh, Jewish background and of European extraction. Thank you so much. For sure. They are not friends, not friends. Uh, people that you work with, have contact with, hopefully uh, that's going to be ultimately constructive for you, but definitely not friends if these are folks we suspect of being racist. Um, Hopefully, compensatory call-in has been constructive uh, for folks listening in live. Thank you for all the folks uh, who called and asked questions. Uh, again, to Robin, Wisconsin, I uh, hope you are recuperating, healing, and uh, feeling much, much better uh, ASAP. Uh, we will be back <clears throat> uh, probably in the middle part uh, of the week. 
Uh, we'll be broadcasting most likely on Wednesday. You can check the Black Talk Radio Network page. You can check the Facebook page uh, for all of the updates uh, for the program time uh, descriptions. Certainly we'll have workplace racism uh, this coming Thursday, every Thursday, and the Delectable Negro Section 7 uh, this coming Friday, starting on Chapter 5. Uh, if you have any questions, you can't find something in the archives. Oh, correction from yesterday. Uh, during Delectable Negro, I mentioned uh, a book. I said the incorrect author uh, and name. We were talking about the section where we had uh, a white female author on the program. I said her name was Valerie Jackson. Uh, it's Valerie Martin. The book, I said the title was Plantation. It is Property. That's the title, but she was a guest on the program, and she was here 2012, uh, and her book is about exactly what I said it is. Uh, it opens with a white male sexually molesting a child, black child, on the plantation, and then later on a white woman, uh, she uh, is sucking uh, on the breast of a black male, enslaved black, excuse me, black female, enslaved black female, uh, later in the book, because we were talking about that yesterday, intellectual Negro white uh, women on the plantation uh, sexually violating black females, uh, how that's something that just does not get uh, talked about. But the book, again, Valerie Martin, Property is the title. She was on the program in 2012, uh, and I'll post a link if people want to look about it. We talked about that specifically on why she included that in her work of fiction. Uh, thanks again. My recommendation, I know it's warming. It is almost springtime. Uh, more folks are going to be out and about. <clears throat> Fine, do whatever you're going to do. I would just remember, we're still under a system of racism, white supremacy. It is super dangerous. I think <clears throat> one of the stories that you heard, the young lady, black female, uh, who mis uh, mysteriously was found uh, dead. They're saying it was a suicide uh, in Texas uh, in this uh, the deputy's son's residence. <clears throat> they said alcohol was also involved. Sobriety would be best. Even if you're going to go out and have fun, you do not want to be behind the wheel and have that be the time where you get stopped. Uh, I'm looking out the window right now and someone has been pulled over. You do not want that to be the time where, as they say, driving while black, you happen to be under the influence of whatever it is. It's not been my experience that that, you know, helps black people get through those situations unscathed. Uh, the evidence, in fact, to me, overwhelmingly suggests that we would do much better. Uh, going the sober route, let whites do all of the alcohol consuming, cigarette smoking, any other poisons, toxins they come up with. Let them do all that. And we're just going to stay sober, take care of our health, take care of our brain computer and see if we can solve this problem immediately. Thanks again. Uh, I also want to get it on the record. There was a white urchin uh, that I saw at the coffee shop today, and he was acting a fool. Uh, he terrorized the whole shop. Uh, nobody shot him. He didn't get tased. No one called enforcement officials. He just terrorized the whole shop for and for a significant amount of time. He just ran all over the place. Uh, his parents were totally impotent and lame uh, social services should have been called, in my opinion. But it was a total disgrace. Uh, it was a racist man racist woman, racist child, live and direct in Washington State earlier today. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time 
we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.